kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. Um, hopefully, you can hear me speaking, which would be great. I can't really tell if you can because I'm not monitoring, but uh, I know Barry is. So, um, with me this evening is the wonderful Miss Margot Gardner. How are you tonight, Miss Margot? I'm fine. Okay. I and can't get shot the- to work, but. <laughs> Well, I guess, guess we can't have everything. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, the very best producer money can't <laughs> buy. Very boring. How are you this evening, Barry? Lovely. New You're hat lovely. today. Loads of e-liquid nice. from that voucher I won. <laughs> and he's, he's rubbing it right in. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, unlike last week, uh, I don't really think I'm going to sit here and cry during the beginning of the show, which is probably a good thing. Um, there really isn't going to be a Kasab tonight because everyone in Kasab is traveling, but Alex Clark with Kasab did ask me to mention to anyone listening that, um, there's going to be a campaign geared toward Senator Ron Johnson this week, maybe tomorrow for CASA. So that's something to keep your eyes open for. Um, so there is no more music, but you guys can hear me, I hope. That's all I care about. Um, so this one I thought was just fun. Um, not probably going to go in order, but um, I think we'll save heads for last. Uh, Due to a legal loophole, there's a murder zone in Yellowstone National Park, Lake Rogers. The next time someone asks you to go camping, take an extra few minutes to think about if you've ever seriously wronged them. They might just be plotting their revenge. C.J. Box's 2007 book, Free Fire, tells the story of a murderer who can't be prosecuted for his crimes since they were committed in a legal dead zone inside Yellowstone Park. What's incredible about the plot of this book is that it's not entirely impossible since that dead zone actually exists and the book's premise is based on a real paper published by a Michigan State University law professor. The author of that paper, Brian Colt, shed some light on this geographical legal anomaly 
in a recent article on Vice, and it's surprising that nothing has ever been done about it. Those looking for the perfect place to carry out their own version of the edge without paying for the airfare to Alaska need only visit a certain part of Yellowstone. Oh boy, what a dated reference. Let's see. For anyone looking to reenact some of the more beautiful, brutal parts of the purge, you only need to plan a hike with your worst enemy and hope that they haven't read up on their constitutional law. As a national park, Yellowstone is federal land and as such falls under federal jurisdiction, which means crimes committed here are dealt with in a certain manner. Article 3 of the Constitution requires criminal trials to be held in the state where the crime was committed, and the Sixth Amendment entitles a defendant of a federal crime the right by trial to jury from the state and district in which it was committed. The only problem with all this is that Yellowstone Park stretches across stretches of Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and Congress put the entirety of the park under Wyoming's federal district. That means there is an uninhabited 50-square-mile portion of the park that falls outside Wyoming state lines and makes it quite literally the Wild West. Since the area falls under federal jurisdiction, crimes committed in the dead zone that are serious enough to warrant a trial by jury would be impossible since it's uninhabited Idaho land that technically falls under Wyoming's jurisdiction. Colt told Vice that before he published his paper back in 2004, he sent copies to lawmakers with simple suggestions on how to close the legal, legal loophole. But to this day, there hasn't been anything done to fix the problem. Responses have varied from the general, it's not so simple, we're looking into it type of responses, to some lawmakers insisting any serious crimes committed in the area would still fall under the state's jurisdiction, despite evidence to the contrary. So for now, there's a little spot in the wilds of Wyoming, Idaho, technically, that you can witness the majesty of nature, <coughs> reconnect with the indomitable spirit of man, and probably get away with murder. I'm going to take some people on holiday there. <laughs> they, they, live, they live in California. And <laughs> I one, was thinking, one, of them, one of them would have was, to roll across to the right bit. But, yeah. I was thinking Professor <laughs> Glantz could do with a hiking holiday. I mean, just look at him. He's a rotund, portly fellow. I think a little bit of hiking would not hurt him any. Uh, yeah. It's not just California people. I think... I think we need to invite federal regulators along on a nice hike. Yeah, I was thinking pretty much the bulk of the population in Washington, D.C. needs to go on vacation there. <laughs> yeah, just stop here. Don't worry. <laughs> Nothing bad will happen, I promise. It's a national park. What could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, I know. Just, just make sure you clear the bears out of the area. You don't want to see them seeing that. <laughs> Oh yeah. no, we've upset the bears. They're all well, couldn't they back clean up for us? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they could be the janitors of nature, obviously. You do need something. Well, the other option is to send them to the bears. The, the other option is to send them to the Canadian Rockies where there's a high wolverine population. <laughs> and, and, and give them like normal <laughs> firearms and go, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Sh yeah. As soon as you see one, shoot it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, for, a, for anyone who's not familiar with the behavior of wolverines, they hunt in oh, packs. <laughs> they're and use they're, one uh, as bait. <laughs> yeah, they are kind of they're they're notorious. They kill bears. <laughs> they're notoriously mean. Yeah, they're mean little fuckers. They really are. With they're big claws, really just like their film yeah. uh, compatriot. Yes, <laughs> and will fall on you from above from trees with those things. <laughs> 
Uh, you know, that sounds as fun as drop bears. Um, yeah. Although a little more real. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, Wolverines do it for real. They'll set up yeah. in trees and land on you. Yeah. Because, <clears throat> yeah, really... when, I had a friend who went on holiday in Canada and he got uh-huh. asked, you know, he asked the the ranger in the area they were in, oh, well, what do you do if you see a bear? The guy's like, well, you've got a rifle, shoot it in the air, it'll scare the bear away. Right. But if you see a wolverine, run. <laughs> as fast as you can. So, like, why? If you see one, there's probably an R20 not far away, and the one's only out in the open to draw you in. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh... I wonder if we can import some. They don't travel well. They have trouble keeping them in zoos, even. They... They they go stir crazy and rip each other apart. So, so yeah. when they say I'll wild animal, yeah. Well, come in a little crate and then turn them loose in Congress. This has got potential. <laughs> I don't know, but there's like. Oh no! If you're going to do that, just go straight for honey badgers. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say. Actually, there's like four people in Congress we want to save. I think. Yeah. Well, there's about. Four. Let's not send them on vacation to Yellowstone then. Those four people, yeah, you you can't go. You you can go H- Hawaii or something. Yeah, else. Yeah. <laughs> oh oh, hey. So actually, before we came on the air, I was saying to Barry, I, I just read that um, this is the first time I ever read about this happening. But as many as sixteen people were abducted from the tourist area in Puerto Vallarta. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't ever happen. Like, Another oh. holiday destination for uh, <laughs> For Congress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, for a couple of people running for president right now, that'd be a nice place for them to go campaign. Oh, God. You know, I... I... No, no, no. The, t- the, the two candidates need to go and do like a, a, a friendship tour of Mogadishu. <laughs> oh, my God. That would work, too. I think one of them you could just send to Benghazi, just to say hi. I'm sure the people don't hold any fucking grudges there. Yeah, most definitely. Well, see, that's um, why that's why Mogadishu would be better because they'd get killed, but it wouldn't be personal. Yeah, <laughs> well, everyone gets say... killed in Mogadishu. Yeah. So, what's wrong with uh... personal? <laughs> Nothing really. Well, you don't want so, to have bias in the news over, you know, so, who killed them. So, Margo, you, you saw the art of the deal, right? I gave you that link, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, the, I think so. The funnier die thing, yeah. It's on Netflix now. For everybody who missed it, Johnny Depp does the. He's got the mannerisms and everything. It's oh perfect. My God, he he yes. does the strangest impression of Donald Trump that you've ever seen for an hour and a half. But it's now available to watch on Netflix. So I, I do wonder if he had to like take a few months off after doing that role, come back down again. Yeah. I, I would think you'd have serious problems. I don't know, but uh, yeah, all I know is psychiatric care. Yeah. <laughs> all I know is he made art of the deal, and all of a sudden his wife's accusing him of beating her. So you know, there you go. God only knows what that does to you psychologically. It's the hair. Mm. It's all the fault of the hair. Yeah. That, that's not hair. That's stuff that grows on a beach. That's shit that washes up. It's seaweed or something. That's not hair. That is not hair. You, you cannot convince me that's hair. Although the best thing I ever saw, did anybody ever see the picture of Mama Trump? Yep. 
his mother has that that horrible she's she's got like comb over it, it looks like Donald Trump's hair. Oh, bless her heart. Yeah, it, it's not a good look. Really. And bless naughty. her heart, look what she birthed. Oh god. <laughs> oh, the poor woman. <laughs> yeah. Uh it, it it's something else. Yeah, and we've said it before, yeah, the, the island that she comes from, they won't talk about the family. <laughs> yeah. The cousins and uh, that when they're asked about Trump, they're like, no, nothing to do with us. Well, um here this is from Google Images. I'm sticking it in the chat for all you poor people. It's a gigantic link. Oh my god. But yeah. That is a gigantic that? link. Yeah. That is a gigantic link. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> you see it, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's and oh my god, swirling around the back of her head. It's like <laughs> wow. I told, I told you, like I don't do politics, but if we're gonna laugh at something, there's gonna be something to really laugh at, and that is something to really laugh at. It looks the worst like she's part... okay up until she was about sixty, and then the hair took over. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a good look, is it? No. That's light socket with lots of moose. Oh, I don't even think that's moose. I don't know. I don't yes, know what I think that is. There's a little something about Mary going on there. Yeah. <laughs> what, I, ew, what I was going to say is, I think that's I think that's a creature on her head. I think he just takes like a a, a pomeranian and shoves it on his head. And that's no, no, there's that, like there's that guinea pig that has hair the same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. One on either side, strap on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay sorry 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 had to had to laugh last week i was crying now it's time to laugh because God, the current state of politics you've got to laugh otherwise your head's gonna implode <laughs> I, I think politics in this country is ridiculous so uh, yeah new planet well yeah so last night Margot saw it. I didn't show it to anybody else because I can't confirm it. But um, I saw some pictures of a riot and then I I saw an interview after the riot and I was trying to confirm what one of the interviewed people had said. Um, the interviewed person, of course, was black. So I asked someone uh, I knew... Um, from the area, if, if that statement was true and I got called a racist, I'm like, okay, I'm not dipping my toe in riots anymore. I, I don't care. I don't care. I no longer talk about it. It's so insane. And I'm a little bit older than you guys by about a decade or a half <laughs> or so. Right. And but it's just like, if you would have told me 30 years ago that race relations would be what they are today i would have said what are you smoking and not sharing well, um yeah it, it, no i i cannot even wrap my head around how bad it has gotten well and in I the mean, last decade it's exploded well i mean a lot of that is okay economically speaking right it, to to go on a completely different track right um after world war one the reparations that were placed on the German people made the rise of someone like Hitler entirely possible, right? 
um, and people who are doing the worst economically speaking will lash out at anybody. Um, and I think that's true. I think that's why you have programs like helicopter money, quantitative easing. People have seen what happens when people go hungry. Yes. Right? I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm not saying that it makes things better, but I'm saying it is what it is. When you see the levels of inequality, you can understand why race relations are so bad. Um, I could also go and say that I think a lot of people are on a reservation in the United States of sorts. Um, and it's a reservation that certain parties put them on uh, with what they call benefits, which is barely above sustenance amounts if of money for the government um, for their votes. And that's what they, they farm them there. It, it's like when you play a video game and Barry, you know all about this when you going for a certain um, prize or something you go back and you farm the area and you farm the area that is very much like that Yeah, it, it's vote farming and you see that happen it's ridiculous um, yeah I mean racism's even become an issue in the UK I mean after the well, uh, EU referendum Racists yeah. are now confident to be screaming at people in the street again. Well, again, the economy is really bad and it's bad globally. So when it gets bad like this, you know, you've read the, the fourth turning, right? Hello? Yeah. Who? Margo, you've read like the fourth turning. Mm, I don't generations. think so. Okay, generations. I'm working, I'm, okay, I, I got them in the house. I'm, it's a work in progress. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so the fourth turning is kind of the stage that the Generation Xers are in now. So that's me. That's very, that's most of the people of vaping age probably in this audience. And the generation before that was like the last generation that had it better than their parents. Um, as conditions get worse economically, the fourth turning just sees things getting worse globally and you see it globally. So I was telling you about that story. So I, I email one of my friends who's living overseas and she's been talking about coming home. I'm like, stay where you are and stay safe because she lives in the uh, just general vicinity of where these riots happened. And she goes, you know, where I'm living, I'm living in beep, you know, she goes, um, and because we live off base, she goes, we're terrified. She goes, there's a lot of people that don't want us here. Um, you know, and they're having their independence week thing going on here and, and they're angry. They want us gone. They, they want to kill us. I'm like, oh, okay. So nowhere safe. Yeah. It's kind of the takeaway from all that. Um, well, strictly speaking, that's true. Cause you know, no, nowhere is safe. Cause you know, mm -hmm. meteorites don't care where they hit. Um, <laughs> No, no, but I mean, it's nowhere is safe from the looming threat of violence. No. And so, it's getting worse. Well, it apart from maybe worse. the Faroe Islands, but that's an extreme <laughs> example. 
Well, I think the Bikini Atoll probably isn't having any problems right now. <laughs> Radioactive crabs. <laughs> right, but I'm pretty sure they're not, you know, they're not rising up against the other radioactive crabs and, and blaming them for, you oh, know, horrible Godzilla's conditions that they're in. Line. <laughs> okay. I should probably pick another story before we completely have a show of ooh shiny moments. Although I think some people probably enjoy that. Okay. Shiny um, is fun. It is. Okay. This is the one you said we needed to talk about. Acker demonstrates how voting machines can be compromised. Okay. Concerns yeah. are growing. And this is from CBS News, which shocked the holy living shit out of me. Um, concerns are growing over the possibility of a rigged presidential election. I know. Why would anybody think that? Experts believe, <laughs> experts believe a cyber attack this year could be a reality especially following last month's hack of Democratic National Committee emails. And it's not just that, y'all. I was telling Margo last night, the, the Soros Open Society stuff has been hacked. There is millions of pages of that stuff, and that is quite the read. Um, okay. Um, the ranking member of the Senate Homeland Security Committee sent a letter Monday to the Department of Homeland Security saying in part, Electronic security is critical, and a cyber attack by foreign actors <clears throat> on our election systems could compromise the integrity of our voting process. Yeah, because it's people outside the system that are going to rig it. <clears throat> Roughly 70% of the states in the U.S. use some form of electronic voting. Hackers told CBS News that problems with electronic voting machines have been around for years. The machines and the software are old and antiquated. But now, with millions heading to the polls in the next three months, security experts are sounding the alarm, reports CBS News correspondent Maria Virial. For weeks, Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump has told his supporters the outcome of the 2016 election could be out of his control. I'm afraid the election is going to be rigged. I have got to be honest, Trump said to Ohio voters last week. But for the hackers at Semantic Security Response, election day results could be manipulated by an affordable device you can find online. I can insert it, and then it resets the card, and now I'm able to vote again, said Brian Verner, a principal researcher at Semantic, demonstrating the device. The voter doesn't even need to leave the booth to hack the machine. For $15 and an in-depth knowledge of the card, you could hack the vote, Verner said. Semantic Security Response Director Kevin Harley said elections can also be hacked by breaking into machines after the votes are collected. The results go from that machine into a piece of electronics that takes it to the central counting place, Haley said. That data is not encrypted, and that's vulnerable for manipulation. How big of a hacking potential problem is this? Valerial asked him. Well, there's a huge potential, Haley responded. There are so many places in the voting process, once it goes electronic, that it's vulnerable. According to a report from the Brennan Center for Justice, one reason these voting systems are so vulnerable is their age. We found that more than 40 states are using voting machines that are at least 10 years old, Brennan Center for Justice researcher Christopher Fagnelli said. Denise Merrill, president of the National Association of Secretaries of State, said the lack of funding keeps most precincts from updating their systems. But all machines have to meet specific government standards. <clears throat> The idea of a national hack of some sort is almost ridiculous because there's no national system, Merrill said. In fact, 
the more than 9,000 voting districts across the country all have different ways of running their elections down to the type of the machine they use. But Merrill said there are checks in place to prevent fraud. Oh, yeah, you can depend on them. <laughs> Our voting systems are heavily regulated. They're tested both before and after. There are paper trails everywhere. By and large, I would say the American election system works very well, Merrill said. CBS learned that only 60% of states routinely conduct audits post-election by checking paper trails. But not all states even have paper records, like in some parts of swing states, Virginia and Pennsylvania, which experts say could be devastating. The Election Assistance Commission told CBS News that it ensures all voting systems are rigorously tested against tight security standards and that systems are certified by the EAC and are not connected to the Internet. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah, the couple of God. comments our voting systems are heavily regulated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah vote, vote watch are sending how many observers this time? A uh, hundred. And they're sending a hundred, and it's more oh, 100 than they've permanent sent. and four hundred temporary. Yeah, uh, and, and it's more than they've. UK, got. we still don't have electronic voting here because the people who run our elections have quite rightly said there isn't a secure enough machine as yet. Nobody's come up with one. So we don't have any electronic voting in the like UK. That. I like oh. that. Why not make them do it by hand? Mm -hmm. yeah. Over here, you can do it by post or you can do it in person. That's it. The That's ice, the only option you've got. I, yeah, I stuck a story in the chat that was, I was going to read it, but it, it took me an hour and a half to sit there and read it. So I'm not yeah. sticking it here. <laughs> it's extremely wordy. But it's very technically truthful about what it takes to hack an election. It comes from Politico.com. It's called How to Hack an Election in Seven Minutes for anybody who's looking for it. Um, and that is a scary fucking read. Yeah. I mean, and it's not just that. We know that, we know that the way hacks work a lot of times don't really always involve getting into the system, but getting to a vulnerable person. You know, and so how many times have there been elections where people that have been dead for 20 years casted a vote? Yeah, well, well you know, you, you know, it'll be bad if whoever wins gets voted in with 150 percent of the voting. The vote. We've seen that. We've which, seen. Which, yeah, I mean, that, that's, we saw that's, that's Mugabe's speciality. No, like no, more we people saw that actually that... live in my country voted for me to be president. Let me put it this way. We've seen entire counties where the voting population, you know, the people who regularly go out and vote for the elections, the presidential elections is about 30%. And the last hotly contented, uh, contested election, we saw precincts where almost no one voted, say 20 to 30 people having like 3,000% voter turnout. That never happens. That never happens. And it's more people than live in the county. And we've yeah. seen how there are organizations that coach people how to vote more than once, yeah. how to go in from one voting station to another and vote, how to go to Vermont and in one day while you're there, say, I'm moving here, but I don't have well, any proof. I, I told you a while ago to go read up on the UK and Rotten Barras. So, yeah, you, you, you've caught up with, like, mm -hmm. you know, 18th century UK voting. Uh, <laughs> oh, there's something to be proud of. We're, we're good with the turn of the century voting in the United Kingdom. And we're doing about as well as communist countries do with their votes. So, yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, all, all, the, all the problems you're having, as you say, with dead people voting and all the rest, yeah, I mean, the UK dealt with, had to deal with heavily a couple of hundred years ago. And yes, that's why well, our voting system is kind of robust and very, very hard <laughs> for them to mess about with. Well, I mean, yeah. they still, they still like pen and paper vote there. I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, I love I that. Mean, what caused the problems here was the fucking hang Chad mistake. You know, oh, yeah. Bush. We really, he was not, he did not win that election. Well, I, I love that. Flat yeah, out. yeah your, your country's so great that literally you're close to not having anybody in charge because they're going to keep going to court until they got the result they wanted. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Yet again, I mean, in the UK, there's a, a, a process for appeals. Once you've gone through Let all me... those processes, tough shit. If you don't like the result, tough. <laughs> Whereas well, over me... there, you seem to be able to appeal and appeal and appeal and appeal. Recount well, after he... recount, you know. Yeah, but what you're saying to me is we almost had no one in charge. Okay, was Bush a better option than no one? I can't say yes or no. <laughs> I mean, I had to fucking live through that, so I don't know. But in my head, um, I'm telling you, we're at the point now where everybody's got smartphones, everybody's got apps. There's almost a way to just do direct democracy. We can cut out the middleman. Congress no longer makes laws, so why are we electing the fuckers? They don't do anything, with the exception of maybe four people. Yeah, all, all your um, current political system seems to do is block anything getting done. Yeah. Well, there's that. Because one house goes one way, the other house goes the other, and then... Mm-hmm. They complain the president doesn't do anything. It's like, he can't. <laughs> like, you know, oh, rule by executive order. He doesn't have a choice. If he, wants, if he wants to get something done, that's the only way he can do it at the moment. So, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the well, problem is... Well, when you've is... got douchebags everywhere, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you wipe the slate clean. At some point, everything... Doesn't that I bring have... us back to the Wolverines? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, at, at every point in history, you look at an empire. Um, if you look at the United States, you see it's an empire. Every empire crumbles from within, and it needs to be replaced with something other. Yeah, you, you so, definitely shouldn't be using the, the, the Roman model. Yeah, we're, we're getting real good the, the at full, the, the full corruption and watching the place burn. Well, yeah. It is, but you know what's frightening is because it is so corrupt, good, decent people that could actually do the job run screaming. Do you blame them? Nobody no. wants to be president. Oh, oh buddy. <laughs> ah. Ah. And who could blame them, really? Um, another nice destination um, for Congress is Siberia. <laughs> That's got potential. Midwinter, hopefully. Uh, no, no, not, not so much. Is undead smallpox re-emerging from Siberian graves? See? I'm telling you, there's good places to send to Congress. Yeah. <laughs> okay. As if the news that resurrected anthrax from thought-out reindeer wasn't bad enough, increasingly warming temperatures are prompting renewed fears that permafrost could thaw enough to unleash smallpox from remote Russian cemeteries. As the Siberian Times reports, this year the permafrost melt has been three times more extreme than the usual above the Arctic Circle, 
causing erosions near graveyards of a town where smallpox wiped out 40% of the population decades ago. Yet some scientists argue that it's not the graves we should be worried about. Scientists from Russia's Virology and Biotechnology Center, or Vector, in Novobrusk, <clears throat> I probably butchered that, I'm sorry. That's pretty good! <laughs> are investigating the bodies, some of which show bone sores associated with smallpox. Fortunately, only fragments of the strain's DNA were found, rather than any evidence of surviving smallpox. However, the center plans to conduct more research on deeper burials in the future, just to make sure. So far, luckily, that's only been the case for years, as another expedition in 2012 found only fragments as well. The effects would be devastating if it ever got out. Around 300 million people died from smallpox within the last century alone, but it's also a rare example of a disease that's been completely eradicated, as the last wild case of it showed up in Somalia in 1977. Even most of the stocks from lab studies are gone, with the only known one shelled away in Koskovo, just a few miles outside of Novrisbik, appropriately enough, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. Scientists have been worried about resurgence from the graveyard thaws for a while. Back in 2012, Science Magazine was telling much of the same tale, complete with gruesome details about digging up young mummified smallpox victims, finding the pustules, and drenching the area with disinfectant so no one would be able to resurrect the disease. In another piece from the Siberian Times, Sergei Nestov, a professor at Novrispik State University and part-time chief scientist at the Vector, emphasized he's less worried about exposure to the virus than infectious disease-carrying rodents infecting immunodeficient people such as HIV patients. Nestov, who was one of the first people to start checking the Siberian bodies for live smallpox in 1993, believes the worry about the thawing graveyards is overblown. Nestov notes that the tombs in northern Siberia all lie very close to the surface, and the increasing thaws paired with the unusual extreme freezes reduces the number of viable viruses from five to tenfold. In a statement on Sunday, in the wake of the anthrax outbreak, Nestov reaffirmed that only fragments of smallpox DNA had been found. He added, however, that no one's supposed to be going near the sites with anthrax to smallpox victims anyway. But the region's harsh climate has often swept away the wooden fences originally erected to keep snoopers and livestock out. Even then, there's a danger of other diseases getting out. If there's a danger of smallpox reemerging in Siberia, Nestov said in a statement to TRT World this week, it'll likely come from people who dig deeper, such as miners or oil drillers. And that's cause for alarm, as warmer temperatures are facilitating such activities in the remote versions of the world. If it's true these viruses survive in the same way those amoeba viruses survive, then smallpox is not eradicated from the planet, only the surface, he said. But in fact, the greatest danger from smallpox may not even come from the thaws, he said. Back in the 90s, Nestoff and some colleagues from the CDC discovered that smallpox genomes are very similar to those of cowpox, an ancestor of smallpox. Back then, a Siberian milkmaid caught what seemed to be cowpox, but he regrets that they weren't able to determine its ultimate origins. And since people are not vaccinated against it anymore, it's possible, as was once the case, that there will be a new transmission of this virus from animals to humans, he said. That probably is a non-zero. Once it happened in history, it may happen again. Nothing really new under the sun. Yeah. As, as, as the expert there said, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. The extreme temperature gradient you've got in Siberia, yeah, and, 
DNA has trouble surviving in dead hosts. Um, well, DNA does, but you know, viruses are kind of... I love them, by the way. I'm like mm. one of those sick people that, you know, I wanted to go work in USAMRID and I wanted to go work with the stuff that killed people. Yeah. Just well, you, I mean, you'll, I, be, you'll be aware then that in especially in London and Edinburgh in the UK, mm -hmm. there are still like these fenced off sections where people aren't allowed to go in. And mm -hmm. that's due to the plague. Yeah. Because that's where well, the plague cemeteries were. So yeah. they put, just put giant fences around them and nobody's going in there. Because uh -huh. yeah, that's one of the ones that can survive extreme temperatures. Well, <laughs> well I mean... Well, that's why anthrax is such a problem. It's, it, yeah. it's really resilient. Um, yeah, well, I mean... It, most viruses Black are death. neither Black death most is resilient as well. So yeah, that's why it's yeah. a problem. But well I mean, pox, yeah, but we have we so have resurgence of the Black Death all the time here. Yeah. And they happen in the American Southwest consistently. If you have an overly wet winter in the American Southwest, then people are getting the Black Plague and dying of it <clears throat> in huge numbers, especially on the Indian reservations. Yeah. That's because the mice are everywhere and you know, they don't really it's not that they don't have modern conveniences, it's that they don't have modern pest control there. The people there are extremely poor. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them really live off of the land. Um, and of course, the only reason so many die from it is, yeah, the, their medical care. Because, yeah, if, you, if they catch it within the first 48 hours, yeah, you'll survive, you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. But yep. it's completely treatable with modern medicine. Yeah. Well, it is, but you know, you just don't want to get it because no, yeah. I mean it. And out there, modern medicine. It, I don't want to say that there is no modern medicine because obviously there is, but getting to modern medicine is pick up a Tony Hillerman up and really read it. Read about the landmarks he talks about and how long it takes to drive from like Ship Rock to a hospital to a hotel, to a restaurant. You know, he sets his characters going out on their 500-mile rounds daily. Yeah. And the reason he's doing that is because he's actually really familiar with the area. And yes, that's what the police patrolled, 500-mile areas inside and outside of the reservation. And it, it really is that desolate. You really don't want to get caught unawares out there. But well, and stop to think about this too. How many times do you think you might be getting sick, and it's just like, well, if I lay down, I'll feel better tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So, boom, there goes your first twenty-four hour window right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is <laughs> one they always struggle with in mm -hmm. most countries that have venomous snakes. Right. Especially, I'm talking here about Australia. Um, is people, who, people, people who go to the outback and really when you're going to the outback you should be taking your selection yeah. pack of anti-venoms just in yeah. case because you know yeah. you get bitten by some of those snakes you've only got like two hours to get the, the antidote or you're dead <laughs> it's yeah it's it really is it's a modern medicine if you are in a rural area good luck to you and even if you have the conveniences of modern medicine, you might not have the most capable doctors, which is also sad, you know, that that's the thing um, with this rural health care. What really 
they should be looking at is more education, not more education of pharmacists, but allowing pharmacists to treat people because they go to school for a very long time. They're able to see these symptoms and their customers and stuff, and they could do a whole lot of good, especially in those rural places. Well, I mean, the, the UK, I mean, it's not nearly as big as it used to be, but they had a series of district nurses. Mm -hmm. That's it. You know, nurses who, well, originally cycled round. Uh, mm -hmm. By the time my great aunt was a district nurse, she was going about on a Triumph motorcycle. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, just going around all the farm farm communities and you know, yeah. taking care of people's health. But yeah, yeah, in the modern world, the all that kind of stuff's been cut that. back on. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And what were you saying, Margo? Lots of times, those are the people that are the most competent to do it because they're actually out there seeing it every day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, she did. Yeah. She she was a district nurse for like 35 years or something. Yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> on her motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> There's a photo hey. of her somewhere. It's, yeah. <laughs> But most district nurses, it was either a little car or a bicycle. No, no, she right. motorcycle. Big triumph. <laughs> hey. Well, it's one of my yeah. relatives. I'm not surprised. But yeah, that's that's what they should have in rural communities, something like that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, modern healthcare, all that's been cut back on. Well, oh, we'll, we'll centralise everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, you know, the people who are best equipped to take care of people were basically your little country doctors, but those are gone now. Yeah. And I remember talking about when I was a kid, we didn't have health insurance, right? But you could go to the doctor and I was constantly at the doctor's as a kid. Uh, you could get your x-rays to make sure you didn't have pneumonia. Uh, you could see the doctor and he would sit and talk with you. He would compound your freaking medicine for you. And when you left, you spent $50 and you had a complete workup with blood work and everything else. Um, and it's not like that today. And it's a shame because that was the best care you could get, really, from someone yeah. who actually knew you. And the infrastructure no longer exists for that because the government has saved the healthcare services. <sighs> like they save everything. Like they're going to save the big fuckers. I hear Margo's dog. He wants to say hi. Yeah. <laughs> it's just one of them. He's he's trying to be good. <laughs> Actually, wasn't uh, he wasn't nearly as anxious as he was last time. That's Probably because good. last time we had both of them going. Ah. <laughs> the stereo. <laughs> That's what what kind of dogs do you have, Margo? They're both Pomeranians. Ah. Yeah, you know the kind that bark incessantly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's probably why that's not what Trump is wearing on his head. Although sometimes he talks. A Pomeranian, like, yeah, no. a Pomeranian <laughs> would be way too cool to get on his head. Let me tell you. But they I'm make just... excellent alarms. I have a big hunting dog, and he is the sweetest thing. And um, he's really old now. Um, and, uh, but even before that, like you, you couldn't really take him out hunting with you, uh, cause he's afraid of bugs. Well, the dog we had before the Pomeranians was half Alaskan Husky and half wolf. And he weighed about 120 pounds. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, we went from one extreme to the other on the dogs. Um, yeah, he he was a very very good dog to have around as well. Yeah, uh, I I love my dog, um, and the dog we every dog I've had has been like a really big dog, and after because it's not fair to get another dog while so old and he can't play anymore and he you know he's just he's all arthritic and just he's having a hard time that's not fair to get another dog but I, I think I would really just like to get like a big Alaskan wolfhound or something like that I just like big dogs See, and I had we had them. always had big dogs always 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 and when we lost the last one we went several years without one and there's just you get a hold of a pomeranian they will just melt your heart they're little cuddle bunnies and uh but they indeed that you know they think they weigh 200 pounds <laughs> they think that they're invincible and immortal and so they're entertaining as well <laughs> well i've noticed most dogs really don't have any idea of their size or scope no like no like the the big hunting dog thought he could sit on your lap on the couch and he's bigger than exactly. Ruger, bigger yep. than Ruger. So it's like, mm, no, honey, you're, you're breaking my legs. Get off me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's the way our Husky wolf dog was. He, he thought he was the size of a Pomeranian and it's just like, can't breathe. Get off me, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, my, my sister used to have a Rottweiler and yes, it thought it was a lab dog. I yeah, love they rice. do. I love rice. I really it's like, do. Oh, 14 stone lap dog. Yeah, that's going to work. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, they they're really are the sweetest dogs. And oh, yeah. They're just, it's how you raise them. They're that's lovely. You just don't want them sitting on you. No. Because <laughs> they're solid well, muscle. It's like... So, my brother had a Rottweiler. And this was before he was like heavily into drugs. So, uh, he lived with one of his friends and his Rottweiler's name was Maggie and she was beautiful. She was Brindle. So mm -hmm. she had that, that just amazing looking coat and she was solid muscle. One thing you learned going to my brother's house, uh, he lived in not so great area. Maggie would let anyone walk in the house. You did not leave when Maggie was there. No. If you came in the house, you stayed in the fucking house. Yeah, Rottweilers don't yeah. like people leaving. Yeah. No, no, this one didn't like it at all. And someone had broken into my brother's house and she chewed a hole through the door <laughs> and dragged the guy back in through the hole. She chewed Whoa. the door. Yeah. No, they, they had to replace the door, the frame, and everything. But, yeah, um, you know, the, the guy did underwear. go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did go to jail, oddly enough. Well, I'll tell you this: this the saddest after honeymoon wedding thing I ever right. saw. I had a chef I worked with. He got married, uh, and one of the things that made him regret his marriage choice, uh, he got married, and then he had to start taking his new wife's dog for walks, <laughs> Rhodesian <laughs> Ridgeback. Ooh! <laughs> Talking about big hunting dogs, yeah. <laughs> he didn't look they so good after having to walk ten miles a day. <laughs> You, you, you give him a saddle <laughs> you don't take them for a walk they take you for a drag yeah, <laughs> yeah so any, any, dog that's, 
any dog that's designed to be hunting lions, yeah, you're going to have trouble with, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. But I yeah, do. He, I love he got married, and then then his wife was like, "Oh, you you, you can you can do the dog walking." It's like, but it's your <laughs> dog. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. But... She's she's had ten, you know, several years of being tired, taking her dog for a walk. <laughs> now she has a husband. Yeah. Yeah. And he he has several years ahead of him being tired. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is kind of funny. Um, we talk about we've talked about the FISA court before here. I know we have. Um, you know, we call them the rubber stamp court. Well, we, and can't, yet, we can't have talked about them before because the first rule of FISA court is. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's Fight Club. Oh, shit, I said that out loud. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In secret battle, surveillance court reigned in FBI use of information obtained from phone calls. Beginning over a decade ago, the country's surveillance court intervened to limit the FBI's ability to act on some sensitive information that it collected while monitoring phone calls. The wrangling between the FBI and the secret court is contained in previously undisclosed documents obtained by the Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC. The documents, part of an ongoing Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, were shared with The Intercept. The documents reveal that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court told the FBI several times between 2005 and 2007 that using some incidental information it collected while monitoring communications in an investigation, specifically numbers people punch into their phones after they've placed a call, would require an explicit authorization from the court, even in an emergency. The newly obtained summaries are significant because they show the power that the FISA court has to limit expansive FBI surveillance practices. <clears throat> Alan Butler, an attorney for Epic, wrote an email to The Intercept. Additionally, The Intercept independently obtained sections of the FBI's 2011 Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide, describing how the FBI currently deals with information it obtains after getting a court order for what's called a pen register or a trap and trace on a target, a capability built into the phone lines that records incoming and outgoing phone numbers for a particular phone. The 2011 guide is currently public but heavily redacted. The operations guide, in addition to shedding light on how the FBI uses pen registers, reveals that the surveillance court's pushback more than a decade ago has become internal FBI policy. During an investigation, the FBI is often interested in who a target is talking to, what calls they make and receive, and where those calls physically originate. By simply telling a judge the information is relevant, the FBI can demand a phone company or email or other online provider immediately hand over any and all telephone numbers, email addresses, and other dialing, routing, addressing, or signaling information. That information can sometimes include locational data. They don't need to notify the target or demonstrate probable cause that he or she committed a crime to get it. But the FBI's monitoring can end up getting more information than just phone numbers. Through pen register and trap and trace orders are not intended to get any content that would provide insight into the substance or subject of a communication. For example, the numbers people punch into the phone after making a call can reveal financial or personal information like a credit card number, a social security number, a PIN, a prescription number, or any other type of response via automated telephone prompts. The term of the art for this information is post-cut through dialed digits. The FBI in 2011's Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide has described the digits dialed after someone makes a call as quote-unquote content. 
Following the release of documents by the NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, many have described the secret of court as a rubber stamp because it rarely rejects surveillance requests. But there is nuance in what the judges have challenged or modified in response to requests over the years. Between July and December 2005, the Surveillance Court approved pen registers and trap and trace devices to target at least 138 people. However, one judge started asking the FBI more probing questions about what exactly it did with post-cut through dialing digits it incidentally obtained with those orders, launching what Butler describes as an open secret fight between the FISA court and the FBI over the information. The judge's request for a memorandum of law appears in the July 2006 Department of Justice report to Congress on its use of FISA pen registers obtained by EPIC. Some of that pushback was documented by Wired in 2008. In May 2006, the government told the court it had the authority to collect sensitive information and would, in some cases, specifically seek authority for secondary orders, requiring a service provider to provide all dialing, routing, addressing, or signaling information transmitted by a target telephone, which in light of technological constraints may include content and non-content digits alike, the report continues. According to the Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide, the FBI agent requesting a pen register has to specifically ask for any additional dialing information following the first nine or ten digits. It is an automatic. The government also insisted it wouldn't actually use that information in an investigation unless there's an emergency. That is to prevent death, serious physical injury, or harm to national security, though it's never been made explicit exactly what that means. Between January and June in 2006, the Surveillance Court modified some of the FBI's applications to stop it from using that information without additional permission, no matter the urgency. The court had made modifications to the government's proposed pen register orders, reads the biannual report to Congress obtained by EPIC. Although the FISA court has authorized the government to record and decode all post-cut through digits dialed by target phones, it has struck the language specifically authorizing the government to make affirmative investigative use of possible content unless permission is specifically granted by the court. The surveillance court wasn't the only judicial body rejecting the FBI's requests to hold onto the additional dialing information. In July 2006, a magistrate judge in Texas denied an application for a pen register because filtering technology would not eliminate the additional content information. That led to then-Chief of the Surveillance Court, Colleen kohler Coatley, to ask the government to respond to the Texas court and explain how it might impact decisions and foreign intelligence investigations. The government said the court should basically ignore the decision and take note of new revisions to the U.S. Patriot Act, which said the government could obtain non-content dialing information because there isn't technology that can reliably separate out content from non-content when it directly comes to this type of dialing information law basically allows for all of it, the government argued. Well, sure. uh, in 2006, the court had not yet written a formal decision on whether or not the government could keep getting this information, let alone use it in investigations. But most of the judges continue to strike the emergency language from the FBI's requests, despite the government continuing to insist the proposed exception is reasonable under the Fourth Amendment because its use is so rare. <clears throat> the amendment. By 2006, the court asked the FBI to produce an entire report on how dialing information obtained through pen registers is stored and kept in databases. By 2007, the court reported that it modified 18 different government requests out of 98 within six months. The secret court continued to delete language that would allow the government to use the post-cut-through dial digits in an emergency and added a time limit on when it could come back to ask to use that content. 
by 2011, the court's resistance appeared to enter into formal policy according to the Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide obtained by The Intercept. The FBI guide states, never in these cases use information like credit card numbers or social security numbers obtained after dialing a phone number, even in cases of an emergency. However, that exception still applies to criminal cases, according to the 2011 Operations Guide. In emergency, information obtained from the numbers people dial may be used as necessary in criminal investigations to prevent immediate danger of death, serious physical injury, or harm to national security, reads the section on post-cut-through dialing digits. And if the target is calling a bank, for example, the FBI cannot get the account number from the call, but it can use that call as a lead and subpoena the bank for that information instead. Ella points out that despite the FBI and the secret court's fight over information, it is basically impossible to tell whether that information triggered investigative leads agents wouldn't have otherwise had without the pen register. The FBI declined to comment on the previously redacted portions of the 2011 Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide obtained by The Intercept, as well as the FOIA argument, uh, documents obtained by the Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide establishes the FBI's internal roles procedures and describes the FBI's authority to use specific investigative tools as determined through the Constitution, U.S. statutes, executive orders, AG guidelines for domestic FBI operations. Chris Allen, an FBI spokesperson, wrote in an email. These rules are audited and enforced through rigorous compliance mechanisms bullshit designed to ensure the FBI assesses and investigations are subject to responsible review and approval. Yeah. Bullshit. Yeah, it is bullshit. So, yeah, if I read keep a, doing what they're doing, it doesn't matter what anyone says. Oh, I know. But I mean, it's just interesting to see that the court will push back. Yeah. Well, I've said you it know? many times so far this year. Yeah, they've pissed off the judges. Yeah. Yeah. They're not. They're not enjoying life now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're enjoying it just fine, but they have to pretend they found their stuff in other ways. Yeah. Like they always happen. It, it just it we makes had a me secret kind of... source. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but a secret source, you dumbass! Don't dial anything on the phone. Basically, I guess that's um, that's it. Don't do your banking or prescription refills online, or on your phone. Forego the convenience and do it in person if you want to have some sort of privacy. Allegedly. Yeah. Margo, thoughts? New planet. <laughs> I, I said to somebody this week, you know, they need to dig out those old plans for terraforming Venus and Mars. Yeah. Well, I mean, SpaceX is going to Mars. Oh. Hello. Yeah, you're still okay. here. Yeah. Okay. You, you just cut off momentarily. Oh, sorry. I said SpaceX is going to Mars, aren't they? Yeah. Well, mm. they're supposed to be. I I doubt a lot of people are going to survive, but no, it's it, a one-way trip, so you know. Yeah, no, there is no coming back from a SpaceX mission to Mars. Just don't, um, just don't take Matt Damon with you. <laughs> Number one rule of space exploration: do not have Matt Damon. <laughs> oh, he grows well, potatoes. He he does do that actually. Yeah, but any plant, any alien planet he goes to, he ends up stuck on because things go wrong. So, yeah, just don't <laughs> take him. Yeah. You know, I really loved, um, I was going to say I really loved Interstellar, but he was such a bastard in that. Yeah. <laughs> that well, it's kind of film. the same role in The Martian, but he was 
being friendly. Yeah. <laughs> it's good scientist, bad scientist. Yeah. But either way, don't take him on an interstellar exploration of any sort because things go wrong. <laughs> they do. Okay. Uh, I don't even know if I covered. I didn't cover anywhere near anything I said I would. Um, well, you've only been on an hour so far. I know. No, no. I know. I'm just, I wanted to get to the next uh, Fourth Amendment story because I'm pretty sure I've got another one because that's my favorite one. Uh, we did the voting machines, dead Siberian viruses coming to life and killing us, digital rights media, and now uh, I did say I would talk about the DEA, and why not? This is actually a USA Today investigation. I gotta say, I, I'm actually surprised at the amount of decent journalism USA Today is cranking out. They're doing a lot of stuff in, com in, in conjunction with ProPublica, which does some of the very best print journalism out there. DEA regularly mines Americans' travel records to seize millions in cash. Washington. Federal drug agents regularly mine Americans' travel information to profile people who might be ferrying money for narcotics traffickers, though they almost never use what they learn to make arrests or build criminal cases. Instead, that targeting has helped the Drug Enforcement Administration seize a small fortune in cash. DEA agents have profiled passengers on Amtrak trains and nearly every major U.S. airline, drawing on reports from a network of travel industry informants that extends from ticket counters to back offices, a USA Today investigation has found. Agents assigned to airports and train stations singled out passengers for questioning or searches for reasons such as seemingly benign as traveling one way to California or having paid for a ticket in cash. The DEA surveillance is separate from the vast and widely known anti-terrorism apparatus that now surrounds air travel, which is rarely used for routine law enforcement. It has been carried out largely without the airline's knowledge. It is a lucrative endeavor and one that remains largely unknown outside the drug agency. DEA units assigned to patrol 15 of the nation's busiest airports seized more than $209 million in cash from at least 5,200 people over the last decade after concluding the money was linked to drug trafficking, according to Justice Department records. Most of the money was passed on to local police departments that lend officers to assist the drug agency. They count on this as part of the budget, Lewis Weiss, a former supervisor of the DEA group assigned to Hatsfield-Jackson Atlantic International Airport. Basically, you've got to feed the monster. In most cases, records show the agents gave the suspected couriers a receipt for the cash, sometimes totaling 50000 or more, stuffed into suitcases or socks, and sent them on their way without ever charging them with crime. The DEA would not comment on how it obtains records of Americans' domestic travel or on what scale, but court records and interviews with agents, some of whom spoke on the condition of anonymity because they are not permitted to discuss DEA operations, make clear that it is extensive. In one 2009 court filing, for example, Justice Department lawyers said agents took $44,010 from two people traveling on a train to Denver after picking them out during a routine review of computerized travel manifests for Amtrak. USA Today identified 87 cases in recent years 
which the Justice Department went to federal court to seize cash from travelers after the agent said they had been tipped off to a suspicious itinerary. Those cases likely represent only a small fraction of the instances in which agents have stopped travelers or seized cash based on their travel patterns because such few encounters ever make it to the court. Those cases nonetheless offer evidence of the program's sweep. <clears throat> Filings show agents were able to profile passengers on Amtrak and nearly every major U.S. airline, often without the company's consent. We won't release that information without a subpoena, American Airlines spokesperson Ross Feinstein said. By itself, a suspicious itinerary amounts to little more than a tip. It's not enough evidence for agents to detain passengers, search their bags, or seize their cash. Instead, agents use it to approach travelers and ask if they would be willing to answer a few questions, a process that often ends with them either asking for permission to search the person's bags or having a dog sniff them for drugs. Agents seized $2,500 from Christine Tillerson's suitcase in 2014 as she was waiting to board a flight from Detroit to Chicago. The Justice Department said in a court filing that agents became interested in Tillerson after they received information she was headed to Los Angeles on a one-way ticket. Tillerson told the agents that her boyfriend had withdrawn the money from his U.S. Postal Service retirement account so she could buy a truck, according to court records. Agents were suspicious. Tillerson was an ex-convict who had spent time in prison for driving a load of marijuana into the United States from Mexico. She seemed to have little money on her own. And a police dog smelled drugs on the cash. Agent seized the money and let Tillerson go. Her lawyer, Searle Hall, said she was never arrested or even questioned about whether she could give agents information about the traffickers. A year and a half later, after she produced paperwork showing much of the money had indeed come from her boyfriend's retirement fund, the Justice Department agreed to return the money minus four grand. A spokeswoman for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Detroit, Gina Bela, said prosecutors concluded that a small percentage of the funds should be forfeited. It's outrageous. It's all outrageous, Hall said. Federal law gives the government broad powers to seize cash and other assets if agents have evidence they are linked to crime. The process, commonly known as asset forfeiture, has come under fire from lawmakers in recent years after complaints that police were using the money as a way to raise money rather than protect the public or prevent a crime. Going after someone's property has nothing to do with protecting them and everything to do with going after money, said Renee Flaherty, a lawyer for the Institute for Justice, an advocacy group that has bailed asset battled asset forfeiture cases. To the DEA, cash seizures are one prong of a broader financial fight against gangs and Mexican cartels bullshit, which have reaped huge profits, <laughs> usually in cash, from selling drugs in the United States. Agents employ, employ strategies and methods that attack the financial infrastructure of these criminal organizations and enrich their bottom line. Spokesman Russ Bayer said, including tracking the couriers they use to transport money. Bayer said agents receive information from employees at airlines, bus terminals, car agencies, storage facilities, vehicle repair shops, or other businesses. They do not explain why so many suspected couriers are released without charges. Mining travel records. The DEA came under fire for harvesting travel records two years ago when Amtrak's Inspector General revealed that agents paid a secretary $854,460 over nearly two decades in exchange for passenger information. A later investigation by the Justice Department Inspector General found that the secretary initially looked up reservations only at agents' requests, but quickly began making queries on his own initiative, 
looking for indicators that a person might be planning to transport illegal drugs or money on a train, according to a report obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. Five current and former agents said the DEA has cultivated a wide network of such informants who are taught to be on the lookout for suspicious itineraries and behavior. Some are paid a percentage if their tips lead to a significant seizure. Records filed in asset seizure cases suggest the drug agency's informant network is broad enough that agents have been able to provide passengers uh, to profile passengers traveling on most major airlines, including America, Delta, JetBlue, Southwest, United, and others. Basically, it's what the Amtrak guy was doing, but at the airport, a senior DEA agent who spoke on the condition of anonymity because he is not authorized to discuss the agency's use of confidential informants. Court records show agents and informants flagged travelers for questioning based on whether they were traveling with one-way tickets, had paid in cash, had listed a non-working phone number on their reservation, or had checked luggage. They also appeared to pay particular attention to people headed to cities such as Los Angeles, which prosecutors described as a well-known source city for marijuana and other types of narcotics, Fresno, known for large quantities of outdoor-grown marijuana, and other California cities. Agents said Zane Young fit that profile when they approached him at Phoenix Airport in 2015. An informant told them that the Young had bought a last-minute one-way ticket from Orlando to Las Vegas for the stop in Phoenix, according to a civil complaint filed in federal court there. And he appeared to have a record of having been arrested for a minor marijuana offense. They seized $36,000 from his bags. Young's lawyer, Thomas Baker, said in a court filing that the drug agency's profile was vague ambiguous, overbroad, and can be manipulated to just include about anyone who flies on a commercial airline. The Justice Department agreed and made a return, half the money, without explanation. Exactly how agents can contact people based on their travel records is impossible to determine. Few cash seizures are challenged in court. Those that aren't leave no public record. And the Justice Department's Inspector General has complained that the DEA airport units often did not track the instances in which they questioned someone, but did not make an arrest or seizure. Sorry, guys, hang on. This is really long. What the drug agency <clears throat> could not do was access the sea of data the government collects from airlines to spot potential terrorists. Airlines must provide basic information about all their passengers to the Department of Homeland Security three days before a flight so they can be checked against terrorist watch lists. That system is so tightly focused on detecting potential terrorists that the government typically will not use it to spot wanted fugitives. Nor are agents able to get information directly from the airlines. They do not want to be associated with subjecting their passengers to government scrutiny because of privacy issues, Weiss, the former DEA supervisor, said. They discourage their employees from assisting us. We want the cash. Drug agents were on the lookout for Nina Hayward when she stepped off an American Airlines flight at the John Wayne Airport in L.A. suburbs two years ago. They knew she was returning from a trip to Tulsa that had lasted less than 12 hours, according to court records. They knew she had a checked suitcase, and they had a drug dog sniff it as baggage handlers unloaded it from the plane. A detective assigned to a DEA task force approached her while she was waiting at the baggage claim. Hayward's answers to their questions gave agents still more reason to be suspicious. When they asked why she had been in Tulsa, Haywood replied that she had been visiting her aunt in the hospital, but couldn't remember the aunt's last name. When they asked whether she had packed her own bag, Haywood answered that a different aunt had packed it for her, but she couldn't remember that aunt's name either. They found $41,471 stuffed in her suitcase, stuffed in envelopes inside a toiletry bag, and a pair of white tube socks, according to court records. 
Haywood also gave agents permission to search her cell phone. On it, the Justice Department said they found a text message from an acquaintance asking why she was going to Tulsa. Money, baby, money, she answered. Haywood was never charged. She declined to comment. A DEA group assigned to LA airports made more than $1,600 cash seizures over the past decade, totaling more than $52 million, according to records the Justice Department used to track asset seizures. Only one of the Los Angeles seizure records, including an indication that it was related to an criminal indictment. Such charges appear rare. Of the 87 cases USA Today identified in which the DEA seized cash after flagging suspicious itinerary, only two resulted in the alleged courier being charged with crime. One involved a woman who was already target of a federal money laundering investigation. Another alleged the courier was arrested a month later on an apparently unrelated drug charge. In many cases, current and former agents said it was not clear that the couriers had committed a crime for which they could be arrested. At least not one the prosecutors would be willing to pursue as the Justice Department shifts its focus away from minor drug offenses. Instead, Weiss and others said agents investigated the couriers after they were released in the hopes of finding a toll that would let them identify bigger trafficking organizations. Many of the people from whom agencies cash had records of minor drug arrests, and some were more significant targets. Two years ago in Nashville, for example, agents intercepted a man prosecutors described in court filings as being a top target of gun violent crackdown in Baltimore in a number of drug crew known as LAX, also the shorthand for Los Angeles' main airport. The man, Antoine Figurina, was carrying $24,010 in cash. Agents told them they thought he was on his way to buy cocaine. Furiga replied, you can't buy a kilo for $25,000, according to court records. The agents let him go without charges, but kept the money. Figurina's lawyer declined to comment on the case. The DEA started monitoring airports in 1975. At the time, traffickers routinely used commercial flights to move large quantities of drugs, both into and around the United States. But airport security overhauls that followed the terrorist attacks of September 11th made that kind of smuggling far more difficult. Over time, three agents who worked at airports during that period said operations became increasingly focused on seizing cash proceeds of drug sales that dribbled through the airports in backpacks and suitcases of low-level couriers. Bayer said the DEA airport groups scattered from L.A. to Atlanta do more than seize cash. In recent years, they have arrested drug trafficking rings that infiltrated the airlines and used their badges to help carry large quantities of drugs past security checkpoints and onto commercial flights. A group assigned to John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York seized 92 kilograms of kilo uh, of cocaine and 27 kilograms of heroin since 2013. Still, current and former agents said when it came to intercepting individual passengers, the goal was usually to find cash. We want the cash. Good agents change cash, said George Hood, who supervised the drug task force assigned to O'Hare International Airport in Chicago before he retired in 2007. It was just easier to get the asset, and that's where you make a dent in the criminal organization. Bullshit! <laughs> Sorry. I can't yeah. help it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's... it's yeah. It's the big, the big gangs <laughs> are not sending their money so through let's see. Airports. I'm going to smuggle a <laughs> large quantity of ill-gotten cash, and I'm not bright enough to get a prepaid credit card so that the ticket is paid for with a credit card or a valid phone number 
I mean, there's just, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the horse shit in here. Um, where's all the money? What are they doing with the money? The, didn't you hear they give it to the local police departments to help them help the system? You no, know, you know, that is just like, if you work for a company and once a year you get a bonus, but it's based on this, that, or the other thing, you you are a fool if you count on a bonus to be part of your income. It's a present. It's a surprise. <laughs> you don't budget how many people you're going to fucking bust so you can line your pockets. It, you don't. I don't. Honest people don't. But people, the only reason I even talked about this one is just be careful. You know, I'm not telling you to break the lie. I am telling you, uh, always create a paper trail for yourself. Even if you got to buy a stupid track phone so you have a valid working phone number. <laughs> when you buy an airline ticket, do stuff like that. Um, or drive. Well, you could or drive. Drive. Yeah, there's probably a lot more of that than you would think. It's probably... No, I, I can't say that's safe either. I mean, we talked about the x-ray vans in New York a couple of years ago that they got after the the terrorism incidents. Does anybody remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So they have vans out there that are perfectly capable of scanning what you have without you knowing it. And if New York has them, what are the chances they're the only ones? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a little sad thing. They're talking about, oh, we're hit, we're hitting the criminals for their money. So, but yeah, okay. the big, the big the, criminals where, where are, are not Where are those wolverines cash. at when you need them? <laughs> well, they're not in Yellowstone Park. No, they're they're, they're up in the Canadian <laughs> Rockies, being, being vicious to bears and other animals. People. Yeah. Yeah, people occasionally. Yeah, but like I said, just. Unfortunately, in the society we live in, you know, you can't carry around cash without being suspicious. And, yeah. and, and the, the thing is, that sort of thing is not just happening here. Well, Talk to I was anybody who's say, an international right, traveler. Well, Go ahead. Not, ju not just that. Um, I was half expecting, right, when I went to Vape Fest, right, right. Mm -hmm. you, you still get the occasional, and comedians do routines on this, that people in England look at Scottish banknotes and think, what the hell's that? And we'll mm -hmm. accept them. So this year when I went down, no. I, I went to a cash machine in England and got money out. And I was half expecting it to refuse to give me money because it'd be flagged as, that's not usual use. And it just blocked the transaction. <laughs> I was like, hmm, hopefully this works. But yeah, it was fine. But, but I have had yeah. that before. I'm away somewhere and I don't go away that often. And the mm -hmm. bank's immediately contacting you going, was that, Is you? that you? Has your card yeah. been stolen? You're like, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. But no, I didn't have uh, anything. Yeah. They can... well, you're... Go ahead. Margot can't hear me. I don't know why. Huh. We're all on the same sound channel. so I know. Margot? Can you hear any I mean, of us? I can hear you, Jan, but I can't hear very. 
Okay. I don't know why not. You're on exactly the same sound as. But I can tell he's talking because his little circle comes up. Um. Do you want to go out? Do you want to go out and come back in, Margo? Why don't I do that? Okay. Um. But what I was going to say is, is that sort of thing is not just happening here. It's it's happening internationally. I I have friends that travel to other countries, and on their way through different countries they're like how much money have you got on you do you have anything valuable they're questioning people for three and four hours now there is a really big cash sort of shakedown going on if you want surreal you can fly to new zealand and they take your biscuits off you all your food Uh, you're not allowed to take food in in new zealand none nothing uh travel streets no we'll grab them yeah Margo, can you hear me? I inserted my quarter. Am I live? Yes, you're, <laughs> you're live. live. Can you hear Barry? It fixed it. All okay. right. So yeah, the yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. The marvels of what, new what? technology. <laughs> it's it's the phone systems because the internet runs on phone systems and the lines and the routing are terrible because not oh, everywhere's upgraded to digital. Internet here. Yeah. So you randomly lose bits and pieces. Mm. Well, Discord's still better than Skype. Yeah. I still like it better. I I feel a little more secure on here because I just do. Okay, so we're all back. Good. Yeah. Um, Yay. Okay. I said there was going to be another Fourth Amendment story. I wasn't kidding. Botnet bill could give FBI permission to take warrantless peeks at the contents of people's computers. From the mind if we take a look around, they asked never depart. In a recent ruling in a child porn investigation case, and I'm going to say this again. um, The reason we speak up and try to protect people who are thugs, criminals, and scoundrels is because once they lose those rights, then we lose our rights. In a recent ruling in a child porn investigation case, a judge declared that the FBI's network investigation technique, which sent identifying user info from the suspect's computer to the FBI, was the equivalent of passing a cop peering through a broken blinds into a house. In Minnesota v. Carter, the Supreme Court considered whether a police officer who peered through a gap in a home's closed blinds conducted a search in violation of the Fourth Amendment. 25 U.S. 83.85.1988. Although the court did not reach this question, uh, Justice Breyer, in concurrence, determined that the officer's observation did not violate the respondent's Fourth Amendment rights. Justice Breyer noted that precautions that the apartment dwellers took to maintain their privacy would have failed in respect to an ordinary passerby standing where the police officer stood. What would normally be awarded an expectation of privacy under the Fourth Amendment becomes subject to the plain view warrant exception. If a passerby could see into the house via broken blinds, there's nothing to prevent law enforcement from enjoying the same view and acting on it with a warrantless search. Of course, in this analogy, the NIT, sent from an FBI-controlled server to an unsuspecting user's computer, 
is the equivalent of a law enforcement officer first entering the house to break the blinds, then claiming he saw something through the busted slats. Bingo. The, the DOJ may be headed into the business of breaking blinds in bulk. Innocuous-sounding legislation that would allow the FBI to shut down botnets contains some serious privacy implications. Senator Whitehorse, Graham, bastard, and Blumenthal... All of, all of my favorite people introduced mm-hmm. the Botnet Prevention Act in May, which, among other things, amends the portion of federal law that authorizes these injunctions. The bill would expand by adding violations of a section of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that cover botnets and more to the list of offenses that trigger the DOJ's ability to get an injunction. More Specifically, it would allow injunctions in all variations or attempted violations of subjugation of the CFAA that result or could result in damage to 100 or more computers a year, including any case involving the impairment of the availability or integrity of the protected computers without authorization or the installation or maintenance control over malicious software on the protected computers that caused or would cause damage to the protected computers. It only sounds like a good idea. The government riding to the rescue of unaware computer users whose devices have been pressed into service by malware purveyors and But as Gabe Rotman of CDT points out, there's some vague wording in the existing law that would undercut important Fourth Amendment protections when used in conjunction with the DOJ's botnet fighting powers. Buried deep within Section 1345B is a single phrase that could open up a number of thorny issues when this injunctive authority is applied to botnets. The section not only allows the government to obtain a restraining order that stops someone from doing something nefarious, but also an order that directs someone to take such other action as is warranted to prevent a continuing and substantial injury. Rotman points to FBI's 2011 showdown of the care flood botnet after obtaining a restraining order under the federal rule the fbi used its own server to issue commands to the infected computers halting further spread of the malware and shutting down the software on infected host devices again this seems like a good use of the government resources until you take a closer look at what is actually happening when the fbi does this sort of thing the court, hearing the care flood case, accepted the government's arguments that the community caretaker doctrine allowed the transmission of the shutdown order, as the action was totally divorced from the direction, investigation, acquisition of evidence relating to the violation of criminal statute. At the time, the government likened its actions to that of a police officer who, while responding to a break-in, finds the door to a house open or ajar and then closes it to secure the premises. Community caretaker function is one exception to the warrant requirements. Accessing people's computers without their permission under these auspices allows the FBI to avail itself of a second warrant exception. In order to scrub private computers from malware, the government would, by necessity, have to search the computer and its contents for the malware. Once the door is ajar, rather than closing it, the police would actually walk into the computer, and anything they find in plain view can be used as evidence of a crime. Nothing in the current version of this bill would prevent such a search or collection, giving the government the potential means to search countless computers of 
victims of botnets, not the perpetrators, without a warrant. While these are both valid exceptions to warrant requirements, they've never been deployed on this sort of scale. Officers can perform community caretaker functions that may result in contraband being discovered in plain view. When the FBI takes on a botnet, however, it will have access to potentially thousands of computers at a time and the legislative permission to not only enter these computers, but take a look around at the contents. The Fourth Amendment was put into place to end the practice of general warrants. The FBI's botnet fighting efforts turn court-ordered injunctions into digital general warrants, only without the pesky warrant part of the phrase. And unlike other warrants, the proposed legislation would do away with another Fourth Amendment nicety, notification. As the CDT noted in its comments on the Rule 41 change mentioned above, potentially as many as a third of computers in the United States are infected with some form of malware. And botnets are extremely hard to clean up, especially when you depend on victims to voluntarily submit their computers for cleaning. Given this reality, unless notice is required by statute, law enforcement would have an incentive to dispense with notice and the much wider array of shutdowns permitted under the Graham White House bill. The bill has only been introduced, and there's no forward motion as of yet. It's in need of serious repair before it heads further up the legislative chain. As it's written, there's nothing standing between people's personal files and a host of digital officers wandering through their virtual houses in search of malware and searching and seizing anything that catches their eye. Yeah, who'd have thought the FBI have fiddled with uh, <laughs> what they're doing so they can basically do whatever they want? Yeah, well, you know. Yeah, because the, Surely... the way the law's written, your computer doesn't actually have to have a botnet on it for them to no. do this to your machine. I know. Anyone's computer. Yeah. It's scary. It's scary. It, it's... Well... They need no we're, proof we're to back go in. To, I mean, yeah. We're back to general writs. We're back to the point where the government could come in your home and open your books and look for your fucking tax stamp. There's a reason why we have Fourth Amendment protections. Go ahead, Mark. Well, see, and it's like I am a, a real, I'm old as dirt. And so there have been times, and I kid you not. Right. Yeah, okay, I know OMG means, oh, my God. But there mm -hmm. have been times that I have had to get on Google and look, what the fuck does this mean? Right. So what happens to an individual who runs across something and they go, mm -hmm. what the fuck is this? And so they take the time to look it up and go, oh, dear God, no, thank you. Um, that little window is now there. Mm -hmm. And so no matter how innocent it may have began, bada ba boom, bada ba bing. There you go. Um, creepy shit. I I like. I know everybody's like a first and a second amendment person. I'm really a fourth amendment person. I want the government the fuck out of my life. I don't think it's too much to ask. Keep out of my house and out of my shit, and don't interfere with how I live my life. I'm not doing okay. anything. But I shouldn't have to prove it to you either. Exactly. I don't if it's I've behind my front door, country, it's nobody's business. I'm in a country which has a the person who is now prime minister who wants to bring in similar stuff over here. Oh, I, I cannot. I cannot believe Subury is your prime minister. No, 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 no. Not no. Subury. Sorry. No. 
Yeah, May, sorry. The other, the other crazy woman, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I got them mixed up. They're both nuts. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, her Snoopers charter was all about bringing that sort of stuff in over here. Uh, well, I mean, Theresa May is just... She and her husband make so much money from this shit, too, you know? Yeah. And of course, she wants to write the rules to make herself money. But then she's infringing on people's civil liberties and... It's funny how the UK doesn't like that shit. Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah and we've, actually, we've got very, very strong privacy laws. The, yeah, well, I mean... Too strong in some cases, what with super injunctions and the like. But um, well, you remember I mean, super injunctions? They haven't, they haven't mm -hmm. been any for ages. Yeah. <laughs> well, well none I mean, that we know about, obviously, they're super injunctions. Well, I mean, yeah, but you have... I mean, you also have secret courts, so do we. Yeah. Um, you know, what disturbs me, at least about some of the secret, because we've got to have them here too, right? Uh, I know some of your secret court cases that have freaked me out. I, I read a lot of Big Brother Watch too, which yeah. is, they, they are an excellent organization if you are interested in your privacy rights in the United Kingdom. They will tell you what's what and who to contact and when something up and how to protest and they're just they're great for that they're great they're a lot like the electronic frontier foundation and epic and a lot of other really good organizations that let you know when your rights are about to be trampled so they are excellent um but i i noticed one of the cases they talked about a few years ago was um the woman who was lacking mental cohesiveness and they took her to the special court to have her fixed. Yeah. So she couldn't produce children because she was in a relationship. That's pretty terrible stuff. Yeah. You know, that that's, that's kind of a form of eugenics really. And it's sad that it's not the kind of thing you can talk about. But you, you do note that it's always the cases like that that are one step beyond or always the ones in the UK that everybody gets to hear about. Mm -hmm. That's because somebody in the system has gone, it isn't right, and makes yeah. the press hear about it. Exactly. So, I mean, well, there's most, of the time, where... most of the time, our secret courts, yeah, you don't hear anything about them because it is just criminals and terrorists they're dealing with. Right. Well, yeah. Apart from the public mouthy criminals and terrorists <laughs> who you can't just stick in a box. Um, I, I uh, didn't, um, and it wasn't your secret courts there, but didn't, didn't one of your courts take and ban somebody from Twitter? Yeah. For being a troll, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you what? know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. So, I so mean... Margo, Go just ahead. put it in context. This <laughs> was one of the vilest human beings you're ever going to come across. Um, and literally, he just they'd pick targets randomly and just make that person's life a misery. You know, it's professional trolling. And, yeah, the court's like, no, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, you will you're not, not doing that anymore. <laughs> No, this wasn't in the secret court. No, this was in the regular court, court system. No. This was in a okay. public trial. This was in a okay. public trial. No, this was not in the secret court. The yeah, secret give him court a nice list where... of banned technologies he's not allowed to use. And if he yeah. does, he goes to jail for the rest of his life. 
Right. But no, yeah. the secret court, um, the secret court was, they do do a lot of, of criminal investigations and, and it's, it's mostly organized crime and terrorists they deal with. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. People, people, you people generally do fall don't into it by accident, though, and yeah, once you're in there, it's yeah a nightmare to get back out. Mm. You know, cases of mistaken identity and the like. But yeah. Luckily, in the UK, there don't seem to be too many of those. Uh, you know, well, it's very infrequent. It does happen, but, but it you does do. Happen, but yeah. You do tend to hear about it. I've, I've got oh, to yeah. say, your press there say, is, is some. Well. I think it's more a case of uh, it's almost as if in, at times there is a professional leaker built mm -hmm. in because whenever the more ridiculous stories come out, it always gets leaked. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah I think, I, yeah, I half suspect there's a guy whose job it is to go, no, this one's shit, right, I'm leaking it. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the UK is a very strange place when it comes to that sort of thing. It would not yeah. surprise me if there's a guy whose position it was to go, no, they've gone too far this time. <laughs> we would need a few thousand of those guys here. Well, yeah. you know, you say that, but I mean, we have got what amount? All right, we've got WikiLeaks. Okay, and just notice how WikiLeaks is getting shit for doing stuff now that journalists used to do. You remember when? They would tell you shit about your politicians and stuff. Yeah. Being yeah. dodgy and taking money. And they're getting all kinds of shit for the DNC leak. Yeah. You know. Um, but this is stuff that, generally speaking, your fourth estate was supposed to warn you about. And in a lot of ways, not in every way, and it's not perfect, because it's certainly not perfect here, the UK still got a pretty good fourth estate going for it, and we don't. What we well, have yeah, I mean, is what's... Yeah. I mean, we have the Guardian's okay. Well, the, now, the reason the Guardian and we have does so... Away, so yeah. Well, the reason the Guardian is able to do so much is because they have a trust funding them. Yep. You know, they're not Same really dependent... Yeah. They're not really dependent on government money, and yep. you need that kind of investigative journalism which you don't really have what we have is an emerging fifth estate your bloggers your podcasters uh your alternate journalism well the, and the best the reason yeah. we have that is because our fourth estate is horribly horribly broken Got well it. the best the best example of what you're talking about is private eye because most people don't realize and do you know who who basically funded private eye and no. His legacy is still funding it. No. Um, Peter Cook. You remember Peter yeah. Cook? Mm -hmm. He helped set up Private Eye. And wow. his estate basically goes to part fund it. Yep. And that's why it's still independent. <laughs> Doesn't um, have to rely too much on advertising and the like. So, yeah. Can run what well, stories it wants. I, I, would, I would say both the Private Eye and the Guardian are... Are about the best sources of news. What we've got here is we've got the Intercept. We've the Intercept is pretty good, although um, you know I hear some criticisms of how they do their reporting. Although they report on everything, yeah, you know. I mean, and it's funny to me because I remember a journalist interviewing Glenn Greenwald and and basically telling him off recently. For not holding Trump's feet to the fire, and he's like, "Well, 
you know, I'm questioning everything about Trump I can, you know, without making everything rumor and innuendo like the rest of these reporters are doing. If there's an issue about him that we should be talking about, then we should be talking about it. But don't make it all rumor and innuendo and stuff yeah. to sell papers. Talk about the actual issues. And he and this reporter got into basically a shit fight for an hour and a half. It was amazing how this other reporter was just crucifying him for this. And I'm going, I'm sorry. I might not agree with Glenn Greenwald's politics in a million different ways, but he is an actual good journalist who does understands this thing called the law. Fuck checking. Yeah, checking. That, that yeah, journalists exactly. seem to have forgotten about these days. Yeah. It's all gossip it's these days. Stuff. Yeah. What I was going to say is what we have here is. We have the Fifth Estate, which is emerging, but we also have, with WikiLeaks and the like, we have the Fifth Column, right? Basically, the, that disruptive force that was there for no reason but to stir shit, but now they're they're actually turning into our Fourth Estate, which is just fucking ridiculous. This is how broken our journalism is in this country. We have a problem. We have a problem. We have lots of problems. Yeah, but you were supposed to have the fourth estate to warn you when the government was corrupt. We don't yep. have that. We don't have that. I nope. have a simple rule. If you have a government, it's corrupt. I'm sorry to say that. That seems to be the world the world is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I any, 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 any government set up in any country throughout history has ended up with corruption in it. And it, you know, it, what do I know? Anyway. Um, none of them seem to put decent controls into curb it either, which is the other worrying bit. Well, yeah, but you're asking the fox to guard the hen house. That's not how it should be. That's why they're supposed to be a fourth estate. They're supposed to be monitoring that shit and telling us, you need to watch this one because they're up to no good. For instance, Nancy Pelosi and the shit she pulls. You don't really hear about that ever. No one really covers that bitch. And she does some pretty terrible stuff. That's someone that needs to go on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're going to call it every time Congress does something terrible. And we need to send this this lovely person on vacation to Yellowstone. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Yellowstone, yeah. Siberia, Canadian Rockies. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting a nice growing list. Mogadishu. Don't know, yeah. 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 Any live-active volcano would be fine for her. I'm sure there are many, many South Sea islands that have active volcanoes that need sacrifices. Uh, yeah. Well, as long as it doesn't have to be, be a clean and pure sacrifice because the volcano would spit her out. But... Oh, fun times. Okay. So I thought this was just interesting. Global Terrorism, Crime, and Sanctions Database World Check leaked online. That was kind of interesting. I actually saw that when it came up on Reddit. And I saw it before Thompson Reuters got wind of it. <laughs> so it, it's a pretty interesting data set if you can find it anymore. The data set contained 2.2 million records on heightened risk individuals and organizations. A database used by global banks, governments, law firms, and intelligence agencies to identify suspects related to terrorism, crime, corruption, and other wrongdoings was leaked online. 
Chris Vickery, a security researcher, discovered software firm MacKeeper, um, researcher at the software firm MacKeeper, recently discovered an exposed version of the Thomson Reuters World Check database, which contains 2.2 million records on the heightened risk individuals and organizations, he wrote Tuesday in a post on Reddit. Vickery said the copy he found dated to mid-2014. No hacking was involved <laughs> in my acquisition of this data, he wrote, mentioning the set appeared to be sourced from publicly available materials. He added that he would call it more of a leak than anything. In an email to Fortune, Vickery further clarified that the leak involved an open-source Apache database called CouchDB. It was CouchDB instance that anyone in the world could access as it was configured for public access. Anyone with the URL could access and review all the records. Vickery told Fortune that Smart KYC, a database manager that sells its services to financial firms, was likely responsible for the misconfigured database. A Thompson Reuters spokesperson declined to comment on the attribution. Fortune has reached out to Smart KYC to confirm this detail as well and will report and will update this post if and when we hear back. Thompson Reuters did confirm the leak in a statement emailed to Fortune. Thompson Reuters was yesterday alerted to an out-of-date information from a WorldCheck database that had been exposed by a third party. We're grateful to Chris Vickery for bringing this to our attention. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, we've also spoken to the third party to ensure there will be no repetition of this unacceptable incident. People have criticized Thompson Reuters for its data collection methods, which can include state-sponsored news sources as well as its designations which opponents say can be inaccurate as BBC's Radio 4 reported last year. The company disagrees with such characterizations and maintaining the database primary function is to help banks, for instance, comply with international sanctions. Subscribers to the World Check include over 300 government and intelligence agencies, 49 of the 50 biggest banks, free employment vetting agencies, and nine of the 10 top global firms. Vickery has built a reputation on discovering data where it shouldn't be accessible. Most recently, he reported on a breach of 93 million Mexican voter records caused by an error in the MongoDB database. Well, just interesting stuff. Uh, I also, uh, I think I mentioned it to Margo like last night about the Soros database online. Some interesting stuff. My, my big question, John. Were you, mm -hmm. in the, yes. were you in the leak? No. Oh, you've not made it to the big time yet. <laughs> uh, no. I don't think I'm on that you, if it's list. from 2014, you might be on it by now. You never know. Huh. Well, you know, I'm yeah, not in that cake. list. <laughs> I'm not in that list, but I'm sure I'm on some other government lists. Oh, I'm sure I'm on a few lists, but I'm not going to mention whose or what. <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing to me. So much of the stuff that we put online, um, it really makes us vulnerable. And people really don't think about it. No. no. People, they don't. Okay. Do, anybody remember when we talked about digital rights media? Um, the way that <laughs> companies were saying, you know, I'm sorry, you can't tinker with your tractor. John Deere is a big a proponent of this. Uh, it's like the books you buy from Amazon or whatever. They have digital rights media attached and they can go away at any time. It's so an interesting example. Innocent Apple. Uh, yeah. Isn't Music. Paul McCartney. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 
um, where where people are having problems with it is in cars and like I said, tractors, stereos, and the like. DRM, you have the right to know what you're buying. Today, the Electronic Frontier Foundation and a coalition of organizations and individuals asked the U.S. Federal Trade Commission to explore fair labeling rules that would require retailers to warn you when the products you come buy when you buy, when the products you buy come locked down by DRM. These digital locks train your computerized devices to disobey you when you ask them to do things the manufacturer didn't specifically authorize, even when those things are perfectly legal. Companies that put digital locks on their products, ebooks, games, music publishers, video companies, companies that make hardware from printers to TVs to cat litter trays, insist that DRM benefits their customers by allowing the companies to offer products at a lower price by taking away some of the value. You can rent an ebook or movie or get a printer at a price that only makes sense if you also have to buy expensive replacement ink. We don't buy it. We think that the evidence is that customers don't much care for DRM. When was the last time you woke up and said, gosh, I wish there was a way I could do less with my games? The FTC is in charge of making sure Americans don't get ripped off when they buy things. We've written the commissioner a letter drafted and signed by a diverse coalition of public interest groups, publishers, right holders, calling on the agency to <clears throat> instruct retailers to inform potential customers of the restrictions on the they're selling. In a separate letter, we detail stories of 20 EFF supporters who unwittingly purchased DRM income products and later found themselves unable to enjoy their purchases. A travel guide that required a live internet connection to unlock, making it undependable and unreadable on holiday or locked into an abusive relationship with their vendors, a cat litter box that only worked if resupplied with expensive perfume, or even had other equipment they owned or rendered permanently inoperable by DRM for a new purchase. An example, a game that bricked a customer's DVD-R drive. Now, the FTC has been equipped with evidence that there are real harms, and rights holders are willing to have fair labeling practices. The FTC should act and DRM companies are so sure their customers love their products, reject. The EFF is currently suing the U.S. government to invalidate Section 201 of the DMCA, a law that has been used to threaten research into the security risks of DRM and inhibit the development of products and tools that break digital locks. Again, even if the purpose is otherwise legal, like letting you read your books on an alternate reader or a different brand of perfume in your cat litter box. Until we can win our lawsuit, people who buy DRM locked products are unlikely to be rescued from their lock-in by add-ons that restore functionality to their property. That makes labeling especially urgent. It's bad enough to be stuck with a product that is defective by design, <clears throat> far worse if those defects can't be fixed without risking legal retaliation. So I just thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, if, if people want the best example of what happens when DRM goes badly wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. Windows 8. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, Windows 8 is the reason that I actually have somebody who is in charge of the sound quality of this show. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, they put so much DRM stuff in Windows 8 that, yeah, nothing worked properly. Mm -hmm. uh, pick, pick, a, pick a host on any of your favorite networks and any of them that, is, that, that went to Windows 8 will give you a lovely rant about 
how brilliant Windows 8 worked for mm -hmm. doing audio and video. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think yeah, anyone nothing, liked it. Nothing worked. <laughs> yeah. There were so many blocks in there to stop you doing stuff. You couldn't do anything at all. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But that's exactly it. And that's the way they want it. They yeah, want yeah, the, their... their example, Apple. Yeah. They are the big DRM company. A lot of people do it. A yeah. lot of people do it. it it's, it's a joke. You know, if you spend 10 or 15 or $20 on a book in the old days when it was paperback, you owned that. You didn't own the reproduction rights or the rights only if you looked on it at it um, on your phone or in a, a certain digital operating system. But that's how it is now. Uh, I'm, and a I'm, lot I'm of gonna, music. I'm going, I'm going to call your know, digital books. I'm, I'm going to cough in a second. <coughs> Caliber. Um, well, right. But where I'm, you, I'm can, trying... you can, you can mysteriously books can go to other formats and lose. All well, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, honestly, if you really news <clears throat> groups, um, I know nobody <laughs> uses them anymore, but. Um, you know, for 10 bucks a year, you really get more bang for your There's a lot of things there that uh, are completely unlocked that you would really like. Put it that way. Okay. <laughs> All right. Your battery status is being used to track you online. A little-known web standard that lets site owners tell how much battery life a mobile device has left has been found to enable tracking online. A year after privacy researchers warned that it had the potential to do just that. The battery status API was introduced in HTML5, the fifth version of the code used to lay out the majority of the web and had already been shipped in Firefox, Opera, and Chrome by August 2015. It allows site owners to see the percentage of battery life left in a device as well as the time it will take to discharge or the time it will take to charge if connected to a power source intended to allow site owners to serve low-power versions of sites and web app users with little battery capacity left. Soon after it was introduced, privacy researchers pointed out that it could also be used to spy on users. The combination of battery life as a percentage and battery life in seconds provides provides offers 14 million combinations, providing pseudo-unique identifiers for each device. Suppose a user loaded their church website in a version of Firefox and then opened up the website for a satanic cult using a Chrome browser in private browsing mode piped through using a secure VPN. Ordinarily, the two connections should be very difficult to associate with one another, but an advert that was loaded on both pages at once would be able to tell the two devices were almost certainly the same, with the certainty increasing the longer they stayed connected. Now, two security researchers from Princeton University have shown that battery status indicator really is being used in the wild to track users. By running a specifically modified browser, Steve Englehart and Evind Narayan <clears throat> found two tracking scripts that use the API to fingerprint a specific device, allowing them to continuously identify it across multiple contexts. The research was highlighted by Luzak Ogenik, one of the four researchers who first called attention to the potential issues with the battery status API in 2015. Although Ogenic achieved some success following his warning with the body in charge of the web standards, thanking his group for the privacy analysis, the API still has the potential for misuse. And while it is only tracking scripts, using it now, Ogenic warns that unscrupulous actors could do more. 
Some companies may be analyzing the possibility of monetizing access to battery levels, he writes. When battery is running low, people might be prone to some otherwise different decisions. In such circumstances, users will agree to pay more for Yeah, I don't understand why paying more for a service, but I mean, I don't understand why that's... Well, I'll, uh, yeah, any, any any place I've been in the last couple of weeks that uses mm -hmm. that have had highly confusing results. I, I changed <laughs> I changed the ROM on my phone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's bat battery usage is wildly different now. So yeah, <laughs> it'd be like it's the same identifier, but the battery usage is different. What the hell? <laughs> That's yeah, upgrading I mean, Android 5 to 6, by the way. Mm -hmm. Gains you a bit, well, in the case of my phone, I've got about 20% more battery life. Huh. That's pretty cool. During use. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I regularly change my ROM because, you know, I, I tinker with it. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, but yeah, yeah, but. Not a normal example, but yeah. Yeah. Microsoft pitches technology that can read facial expressions at political rallies. On the 21st floor of a high-rise hotel in Cleveland, in a room full of political operatives, Microsoft Research Division was advertising a technology that could read each facial expression in a massive crowd, analyze the emotions, and report back in real time. You could use this at a Trump rally, a sales representative told me. At both the Republican and Democratic conventions, Microsoft sponsored event spaces for the news outlet Politico. Politico, in turn, hosted a series of Microsoft-sponsored discussions about the use of data technology in political campaigns. And throughout Politico spaces in both Philadelphia and Cleveland, Microsoft advertised an array of products from Microsoft Cognitive Services, its Artificial Intelligence and Cloud Computing Division. At one exhibit titled Real-Time Crowd Insights, a small camera scanned the room while a monitor displayed captured images. In five seconds, a new image would appear with the data animated for each face, an assigned serial number, gender, estimated age, and any emotions detected in the facial expression. When I approached, the machine labeled me B2FF and correctly identified me as a 23-year-old male. It interpreted my facial expression as neutral and with a bit of surprise. I asked Christina Pearson, a nearby Microsoft spokesperson, to confirm that the technology was meant to be used on a large crowd, like at a Trump rally. Yes, she confirmed. Or it's meant to be at the Super Bowl, wherever you want. Real-Time Crowd Insights is an application programming interface or software tool that connects with applications to the Microsoft Cloud Computing Services. Through Microsoft's Emotional Analysis API, a component of Real-Time Crowd Insights, applications send images to Microsoft's service. The servers then analyze each face and return emotional profiles for each one. In a November blog post, Microsoft said that the emotional analysis could detect anger, contempt, fear, disgust, happiness, neutral sadness, or surprise. Microsoft sales representatives told me that political campaigns, political campaigns could use the technology to measure different emotional impacts of different talking points, and political scientists could use it to study crowd response rallies. But the use of facial analysis at political events is eerily reminiscent of George Orwell's 1984, where the government monitors faces for any signs of dissatisfaction or face crime. In Orwell's world, to wear an improper expression on your face, to look incredulous when a victory was announced, for example, 
was itself a punishable offense. Microsoft's real-time crowd insights potentially pick out stern faces of dissenters or angry faces of future protesters all in a matter of seconds. Donald Trump's security personnel have already tried to preempt protests and rallies by kicking out people they thought likely to protest. At one rally in February, security asked 30 black students to leave before Trump started speaking. According to USA Today, the students had planned to sit in silent protest, but one 19-year-old student said, we didn't plan to do anything. In Politico suite in Cleveland, one passerby told me he was slightly creeped out, and another asked me why Microsoft was collecting their facial information. The machine also picked up on a small range of negative responses in the room, including fear, contempt, and disgust. When I attended the real-time Crowd Insights display in Philadelphia, I asked to speak with a spokesperson and was introduced to Catherine Stack, a managing director with the public affairs firm Bertson Maisler. I asked Stack whether the product could be used to identify protesters or dissidents at rallies or political events. I think that would be a question for a futurist, not a technologist, she replied. Facial recognition technology, the identifying of faces by name, is already widely used in secret by law enforcement, sports stadiums, retail stores, and even churches, despite being of questionable legality. As early as 2002, facial recognition technology was used in the Super Bowl to cross-reference the 100,000 attendees to a database of faces of known criminals. The technology is controversial enough that in 2013, Google tried to ban the use of facial recognition apps in its Google Glass systems. But real-time Crowd Insights is not a true facial recognition. It could not identify be my name, but identify me by name, but only as B2FF. It did, however, store enough data on each face that it could continuously identify it with the same serial number, even hours later. The display demonstrated that capability by distinguishing between the number of total faces it had seen and the number of unique serial numbers. Instead, real-time Crowd Insights is an example of facial characterization technology, where computers analyze faces without necessarily identifying them. Facial characterization has many positive applications. It has been tested in the classroom as a tool for spotting struggling students, and Microsoft has boasted that the tool will even help blind people with faces around them. But facial characterization can also be used to assemble and store large profiles of information on individuals, even anonymously. Microsoft has traditionally adopted an opt-in policy with facial recognition, requiring users' consent before they can store an image of their face. The Kinetic Sensor on an Xbox, for example, allows users to sign in through facial recognition technology, but requires users to first give consent according to Microsoft's privacy policy. Microsoft has a similar code of conduct for APIs, which requires developers to abstain, obtain consent of people whose data, such as images, voices, video, or text, are being processed by your app. Alvaro Boya, a professor at Georgetown Law School and expert on privacy and facial recognition, hailed that code of conduct as evidence that Microsoft is trying to do the right thing, but he pointed out it leaves a number of questions unanswered, as illustrated in Cleveland and Philadelphia. It's interesting that the app is being shown at the convention, remembered the faces of the people who walked by. That would seem to suggest their faces were being stored and processed without the consent that Microsoft's privacy policy requires, Bedoya said. You have to wonder, what happened to the face templates of the people who walked by that booth? Were they deleted or are they still in the system? Microsoft officials declined to comment on exactly what information is collected on each face and what data is retained, stored, etc. 
instead referring to me to their privacy policy, which does not answer the question. Doya also pointed out that Microsoft's marketing did not seem to match its consent policy. It's difficult to envision how large companies will obtain consent from people in large crowds and rallies. See, Talks. right, right. I've got a good response to this one. There's, okay. there's a way around it. Mm -hmm. Just need everybody to take up a very old sport. Mm -hmm. Gurning. <laughs> yeah. I've put the See, and I'm sitting here thinking, I want to become really good friends with someone who's a makeup artist, and every time I walk out of the house, just look like a Klingon or something. Um, <laughs> you know, there there are. Have you ever seen the the scarves that all the celebrities are wearing? They have these horrible prints on them. They're black and white. Yeah. Yes. Okay. We throw off cameras. Yeah. They completely throw off cameras. You wear it close to your face, and it's it's part of the dazzle technique. And I think we talked about this a few years ago. Um, yeah, it's, you don't... it's old fashioned camouflage technique. It, it is. It is. And they fool cameras and they fool computers. Yeah. So, I mean, it's there why are ways to do it. number plates aren't allowed because otherwise yeah. the police cameras couldn't identify the number exactly. plates. Exactly. I mean, yeah. there, there really are ways to protect your privacy. I mean, what's kind of cool is seeing the pictures of the people going out in Urban Dazzle. You've seen that, haven't you, Barry? Yeah. Yeah, their hair is stacked all weird, it's cut all weird, and they've got, like, these weird stripes and makeup on their face. It's just, some people really want their privacy. Yeah. And they want it bad enough that they're willing to do that sort of thing. Um. I don't know if it will ever become an en masse thing because if you look at the amount of people using things like, say, Pokemon Go, you know, they yeah. don't have yeah, any regard for their privacy. Pointing their cameras everywhere, yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll say bring, bring back gurning as a sport everyone does. <laughs> I'll screw up well, the software. I... <laughs> Honestly, I'm surprised these people aren't into geocaching. I mean, that that seems <laughs> like it would be a, a more of a challenge and, you know, less of a chance for you to get hurt. But what do I know? Um, also, I don't know if anybody knows this, but you might want to look into the company that's actually running Pokemon Go if you give a shit at all about privacy and look well, at you mean what's the, being the, the said. The security consultancy firm that runs yes. oh yeah mm -hmm. oh yeah <laughs> that that is some i'm like it's one of really the only times nintendo care. has outsourced something which tells but you everything it, you need to know yeah it yeah it's spooky shit that's one of the worst incense in incidents ever okay i've only got two more i don't know if anybody's up for it but i do want to talk about the pentagon <laughs> <laughs> Did I say yellow cake earlier? <laughs> well, I'm more people that need to go off into the wilderness. Yellowstone, okay. Pentagon sloppy bookkeeping means it can't pass. It means 6.5 trillion can't pass. The Defense Department over the years has been notorious for its lax accounting practices. Bullshit. The Pentagon has <laughs> never completed an audit of how they actually spend the trillions of dollars on wars, equipment, personal, housing, healthcare, and procurements. An increasingly impatient Congress has demanded, and you see how well it works when they demand shit, the Army 
achieve audit readiness for the first time by September 30th, 2017, so that lawmakers can get a better handle on military spending. Pentagon watchdogs think that may be mission impossible, and for good reason. A Department of Defense Inspector General's report released last week offered a jaw-dropping insight into just how bad the military's auditing system is. The Defense Finance Accounting Services, the behemoth Indianapolis-based agency that provides finance and accounting services for the Pentagon, civilian, and military members, could not provide adequate documentation for $6.5 trillion worth of year-end adjustments to the Army General Fund transactions and data. The DFAS has the sole responsibility for paying all DOD military personnel, retirees, and annuits, <clears throat> along with, oh my God, <clears throat> along with Pentagon contractors and vendors. The agency is also in charge of electronic government initiatives, including within the Executive Office of the President, the Department of Energy, and the, departing, uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs. Wow, that's a Sorry, this guy needs an editor. There's nothing new in the IG report that suggests that anyone has misplaced or absconded with large sums of money. Yeah, because that never happens. Rather, the agency has done an incomplete and incompetent job of providing written authorization for every one of their transactions, so-called journal vouchers that provide serial numbers, transaction dates, and amount expenditures. In short, the DFAS has lagged so far behind in providing the tracking information essential to performing an accurate audit of Pentagon spending and obligations, according to the IG's report. Army and Defense Finance Accounting Services in Annapolis personnel did not adequately support $28 trillion in the third quarter adjustments and $6.5 trillion in the year-end adjustments made to Army General Fund data during FY 2015 financial statement compilation wrote Lauren T. Venable, Assistant Inspector General for Financial Management and Reporting. We conducted this audit in accordance with generally accepted government accounting standards. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Issue one. <laughs> I mean, if if you can't even meet government standards for general accounting, you're... Okay. Further mystery is what happened to the thousands of documents that should be on file but aren't because you can trust the Pentagon. The IG study found that DFAS did not document or support why the Defense Department reporting system removed at least 16,513 of 1.3 million records during quarter year fiscal quarter three fiscal year 2015. As a result, the data used to prepare fiscal year 2015 AGF third quarter and year-end financial statements were unreliable and lacked an adequate audit trail, the IG report stated. So, okay, they removed thousands of documents and no one can figure out why the paper trail is okay. The troubling findings emerged from a wide-ranging audit of the capital funds and financial statements across military services, including the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Army. The problem is no secret to investigative reporter Scott Paltrow at Reuters, who exposed outrageous fraud and abuse in a three-part series in 2013 called Unaccountable. He wrote, for two decades, the U.S. military has been able to submit to an audit, flouting federal laws and concealing waste and fraud totaling billions of dollars. Linda Woodford, Woodford spent the last 15 years of her career inserting phony numbers in the U.S. Department of Defense accounts. 
every month until she retired in 2011, she says. The day came when the Navy would start dumping numbers on the Cleveland, Ohio DFAS. Using the data they received, Woodward and her fellow accountants there set about preparing monthly reports to square the Navy's books with the U.S. Treasuries. And every month they encountered the same problem. Numbers were missing. Numbers were clearly wrong. Numbers came with no explanation of how the money had been spent or which congressional appropriation it came from. The IG has cautioned in the past that journal voucher adjustments should comply with applicable regulations, which require adequate documentation for each transaction. The June 26th IG report made a number of requests and suggestions for the DFAS officials and the Pentagon have agreed to apply, uh, comply with. The top suggestion is the most obvious one. The DFAS enforced the applicable guidelines periodically issued under the Secretary of Defense Comptroller regarding journal voucher category identification codes and metric reporting. Until the Army and DFAS Annapolis correct these control deficiencies, there is considerable risk that the AGF financial statements will be materially mistrailed and the Army will not achieve audit readiness by the congressionally mandated deadline of September 30th, 2017. Like anything will happen to them. Yeah. I mean, they just go through and, oh, let's throw out these 17,000 records. No problem. We, we have all these secret projects we're funding illegally. Uh, <laughs> someone tell the accountants to stop keeping notes. That's basically what's yeah. happening. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's just hilarious to me. And, well, and every... it's not how, it's not like, how the fuck do you lose six and a half trillion dollars? Well, We're not... back of the sofa. It's always back of the sofa. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't anybody remember Donald Rumsfeld getting on TV on September 8th, 2011, and telling the world that there was $2.3 trillion lost that the Pentagon couldn't account for? No one remembers that. Do you know why? The next day was September 11th. I mean, two right. days later was September 11th. So that just got lost in the shuffle. But this sort of shit happens all the time with the Pentagon. It's just now that somebody's paying attention to it, I guess. That's why the Pentagon's such a big building. It's, it's, all, it's all these giant sofas that hide the money down. <laughs> oh, I figured it was so big so that they had the money incinerator room that they could just throw good money after bad into and stop and think what would happen to you or I if we filed a tax return and we were 10 bucks off on something. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I mentioned it, it before. <laughs> well, I think I mentioned it before. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a conservative. I am not a Republican. Uh, I'm just interested in getting out of all this shit with my skin intact. So I support a number of charities that some would consider I guess subversive or controversial. I do this of my own volition and with my own money. I've never not really had a problem with IRS and I can remember one year my audit being so fucking bad that I had to get an attorney because of these charities that I supported. And um, it, that year I got my refund check <laughs> i hate to say it. i got my refund check um 12 days from the previous year before i got the new refund check 
And now I just go to an attorney all the time when I found, would go with an attorney all the time when I found taxes. And I don't make that much money. So can I say I'm being targeted? I don't know, but I do know that the attorney general is saying that, yes, people are being, you know, they're being targeted. And I know what my specific history has been like. And I know that sort of shit is illegal. And that's just for who I support with my financial dollars. It's nothing about who I support publicly or any of that. I, I, I deal with this by living in a country that doesn't have a tax system that's got billions of stupid regulations allowing... Okay, the UK tax system is not ideal. No, Nobody's <laughs> tax system is ideal. But we have a lot less paperwork involved than you guys. <laughs> a lot less. I know that. I mean, for instance, I have never been self-employed. The only time I would have to fill out my own tax paperwork is if I was running a company or self-employed. Otherwise, the system's automated. I earn so much money, I pay so much tax. It works it all out. And yeah, okay, refunds can take, well, years. Um, <laughs> but you eventually do get them. Um all, all it's I can all tell, automated. None of us having to fill out mountains of paperwork right. every year. All yeah. I can tell you is if you live in a country where the IRS can be used to target you for your political beliefs or for charities that you support or for political organizations that you donate to, then your country is broken and has been broken for a long time. And you have to understand that the IRS has been used by whatever sitting president has been in office for years to do this sort of shit. Yeah. For years. And it it's a consistent thing. So been for have, decades in this country. Yeah. It it's a real problem. It is a real problem. And you know, I hate to tell you, if you support Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Tenth Amendment issues with your money at some point you're probably going to have some problems with your fucking taxes yep you know I, i'm just i'm not saying that i do that i'm not saying that i don't i'm just saying that if you were to support all those things in conjunction with maybe privacy right organizations you would have some problems and i am speaking from experience See, John, what, what the mistake you're making is you're not a billionaire running all your stuff offshore so you don't pay any tax. See, yeah, you're right. You know what the problem is? I haven't taken Paris Hilton's fucking advice and just stopped being poor yet. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's the solution to everything. Yeah, I mean, you don't have, your bank account isn't run through the Turks and Caicos. I mean, terrible. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's my own damn fault then. I don't know. You know, I when I look at shit like the Pentagon just throwing away that many files and just going, yeah, fuck it, we don't care. It really makes me want to stand up and say, you know, my tax dollars are being used in a way that I don't agree with. Yeah. You know, um, it, it does stop make, it. It does make me laugh, though. You know, we've talked about the different countries and how they deal with secrecy. It mm -hmm. always cracks me up that, yeah, those 16,000 records that they ditched, 
that that was probably for programs that they didn't want the public knowing about. So mm -hmm. secret. It's like, yeah. why did it have paperwork in the first place if it's that secret? <laughs> you morons! It's like, well, oh. I mean, that's this is why when they said everything was going from paper to computer, I said, oh shit, everybody's screwed. Yeah. And we saw what the DNC leaks. You can see what the Soros leaks. You can see what the stuff WikiLeaks is pumping out on a daily basis. How very vulnerable computer systems make you. But in the old days, when you had good investigative reporters, those paper trails would be followed, too. Uh, they're still acting like there's investigative journalists out there, and there really aren't that many left. No. No. It's the fact that they're now employing so staff that are so incompetent that it's all showing up so easily. That's <laughs> that's the one that gets you. I mean, well, you know, I I laugh today because I was reading a news article, and I'm reading through it, and it said, according to a source in Facebook, <laughs> I sat here and went, "What in the fuck? They are using Facebook? Oh yeah." It, <laughs> well, no, I mean, get, this was get, local. This was get, local. I mean, you get journalists regularly now quote Wikipedia. I mean, Twitter. Yeah. Twitter, which, oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to do the, the French and government one. And then, do you want to read the headpiece, Margo? Or uh, do you want me to read it? I mean, I'll read it. read it. You need to read it so I can sit here and think about Jeannie's smiling face. Okay. <laughs> All right. I just got one more bad one and then we can. French government wants a global initiative to undermine encryption and put everyone at risk. From the this is a bad, bad idea department. Some bad ideas never seem to die. It appears the French government is working to enlist other countries to try to undermine encryption and put us all at much greater risk. That's about the only way to read the news that French Interior Minister Bernard Chavez is promoting a global initiative to fight messaging encryption used by ISIS. What? Messaging encryption widely used by Islamic extremists to plan attacks needs to be fought at an international level, French Interior Minister Bernard Chavez said on Thursday, and he wants Germany to help him promote his global initiative. He meets with his German counterpart, Thomas de Meers, on August 23rd in Paris, and they will discuss a European initiative with a view to launching an international action plan, Herbeis said. Remember, of course, that much of the planning and communications for the Paris attacks last year were done without encryption, and in fact, much of the planning was done fairly out in the open with little effort to mask what was happening. Of course, that won't always be true. And certainly, it's quite likely that people are plotting all sorts of nasty stuff without encryption. But even then, that doesn't actually result in law enforcement going dark, as they'd have you believe. First of all, encryption is still difficult to use and easy to mess up. In fact, most reports suggest ISIS is pretty bad about its OPSEC when it comes to encryption. And even if they are successfully using encryption, they still have plenty of other breadcrumbs for law enforcement and the intelligence community to track top of that, any effort to weaken encryption is both dangerous and pointless. A mandate for backdoors or something similar only introduces vulnerabilities into encryption that will be targeted by criminals and possibly terrorists, plotting many, many, many more people at risk. And it's pointless because there are enough open source encryption products at this point that trying to regulate other products won't help much. ISIS will just focus on using code they already have access to. 
So none of this adds up other than as a stupid reactionary move, fear and ignorance. A global initiative to fight encryption ignores the fact that encryption isn't some invisibility cloak that masks all terrorist activity. It also makes us all less safe and probably won't stop ISIS from actually using strong encryption. So what is the point other than shadow boxing and making it look like politicians are doing something when they're not sure what to do about attacks? Bingo. Yeah, it's just another... It's, um, it's, it's another politician shouting to get his name in the news. Uh, well, look it, at it's me, all... look at me, I want to do this. I'm helping. Yeah. You know, I, does anybody uh, remember The Simpsons? Uh-huh. Uh, um... <laughs> The police chief's son is always doing stupid shit going, I'm helping. That's yeah. what I think when I read stuff like that. There's, They're going to protect us. They're going to protect us. Oh, I'm helping. No, you're really not. Just, you know, it would help more. Butting the fuck out. You know, this, the internet's always been kind of a form of chaos that evolves into spontaneous order. And by trying to force a different kind of order on it, you're just going to fucking break it. Just yeah, my I've said it before. I mean, it's it's also all about laziness. Because any yeah, encryption is. can be broken. Mm-hmm. As hackers prove, all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yep. yeah. It's all but does it make it's you feel all warm sure. and fuzzy? No, it I doesn't. never feel it... warm and fuzzy. <laughs> I would have to agree with Barry. Uh, warm and fuzzy is never really something I feel. I feel <laughs> sarcastic and angry most of the time. Oh, speaking of sarcasm, can I bring Jeremy Brentham's mummified head as a carry-on item? Passengers' hilarious question to airport security. The TSA encouraged questions about what can be taken onto a plane. Passenger <clears throat> sorry, asked whether he could bring a mummified head on. TSA replied saying it was fine as long as it was properly packaged and labeled. Uh, Plane passengers often try to sneak some weird and wonderful things through airport security. So perhaps it came as no surprise to the U.S. Transportation Security Administration that a passenger queried them about bringing the mummified head of an English philosopher and founder of utilitarianism on a plane. Sam Levine from Brooklyn asked the TSA on social media, Wondering if it's okay to bring this mummified head of Jeremy Brantham as a carry-on item. Thanks. Uh, this was shared by the Transportation Security Administration on its Instagram page after it was contacted by a passenger who wanted to know if he could bring the mummified head of Jeremy <laughs> Brantham on the plane. Accompanying the tweet was a ghoulish representation of the head of Brantham, who died in 1832. When he died, Brantham's skeleton, including the head, was preserved in a wooden box called the Auto Icon at University College London. However, the mummification of the head did not go according to plan, and instead a wax model was designed. The head is believed to be locked away at the University College of London's Institute of Archaeology, so it's highly unlikely that Mr. Levine has got his hands on the head. The TSA responded, saying that the head is allowed in carry-on as long as it is properly packaged, labeled, and declared. The TSA, far from doubting the ownership of the issue, replied, Jeremy Brantham's mummified head is allowed in carry-on as long as it's properly packaged, labeled, and declared. We advise reaching out to your airline to make sure this item is allowed. Mr. Levine messaged the TSA back, thanking them for the rapid response. 
the security agency then took to Instagram to urge people to contact them regarding what can and can't be brought on board. Mail Online has previously reported that some of the stranger things passengers have tried to take through security. These include fur-lined handcuffs, a trusty toilet seat, a sword, a pig, and turtles. Um, You know, maybe it's me. Uh, They have so many bigger issues that they have to deal with. For instance, the beating of a young deaf girl deaf and blind girl who had just gotten brain surgery or the fact that that 50% of the people working for them are fucking criminals. I think they have bigger fish to fry than, you know, So does this mean like a terrorist, as long as he packages his bomb correctly and labels it? (laughs) You know, see, I don't know about that. See, now that's that's a question to ask him. Anything to declare? Yes, I've got this bomb. Package with bomb written on it. <laughs> so basically, I have this bowling ball full of TNT. Can I bring it on through TSA? I mean, mm. it just it, it boggles the mind. That <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it was funny, and Jeremy Brantham's head is is seriously disgusting. It is gnarly. That is fucking gross. Well, I don't when know. They, when they said modification went wrong, they weren't kidding. Yeah. No, it really went wrong. I I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I think just... they got a balance of the chemicals a bit wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, and we've all got a very dear dear friend who we know just adores TSA. <laughs> and when when I saw this, I I couldn't help but think. Perhaps she needs to reach out to the TSA a little more. So, are you the, saying that that, that 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 she should package herself properly and have a label? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, you're right, Michael Morris. Um, Dick Durbin ordered the cut in opioid production. I'm helping. Uh, next, you should order less insulin to cure diabetes. I don't know about that, but the government seems to, I don't know, they think the state of um, unhealthiness is just something that's all in our mind. And it's funny, I know I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, I'm going to go there again, I'm sorry. I, I know this is supposed to be a vaping show, but the last last show was all vaping, and I was practically crying at the end, so I couldn't do that tonight. But um There's been some serious research done since the 1960s and 1970s into the causes of pain and chronic pain, bone and and muscle pain, migraines, um, seizures. Pretty much everything runs along this one neurotransmitter in your brain, which carries nicotine. It's a nicotonic receptor, but it it also... (sighs) It also carries its own receptor in a much weaker quantity for the opiates and the marijuana-like chemicals that your body makes naturally. There's a school of thought that thinks that people that have these diseases, including some mental illnesses, have a real problem with making their own narcotic chemicals and their own... um, what do they call the the marijuana chemicals? I forget what they call. Them. But 
cannabinoids, that they have problems making those themselves. So if you have people running around with chronic pain and you take away one thing that works for them, what do you think they're going to turn to, right? They're going to turn to the cannabinoids, which work on a weaker level, but do work. And the government is criminalizing sick people for being sick. And it's punishing sick people for being sick instead of supporting them. They should be supporting people instead of punishing them, and they don't want to do it. It's the same thing you see with vaping. Uh, it's the same thing you see the government do with a lot of things. And it makes a lot of people come to the conclusion that the government really hates us and wants to practice a form of eugenics on us. I'm not saying that that's what I think, but I've seen some people make that statement. And I can understand why you would think that about your own government when they're doing daffy shit like this, if you're a chronic pain patient. Do you know what I mean? Well, there, there have been some MRI studies and there were the, the films that I saw, there were actually three specific places on the brain Mm -hmm. that show where these chemicals are naturally processed. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking about people that have problems like this, those are the areas of the brain that aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. And it, but why is the government against it? Because the people that have bought them and paid for them won't make more money because there's more money to be made in sick people than well people. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about vaping, if you're talking about cancer, if you're talking about mental illness, if you're talking chronic pain, it doesn't matter. They're in it for the money, no matter what angle you approach it from. And until people can see that's what's happening and affect changes there, it's just going to continue. It's been that way for decades, and it just gets worse the more time that goes on. It does. And, you know, we know the racist beginnings, at least in this country, of them banning use of cannabis, right? Anybody mm-hmm. who can, um, and there's there's plenty of really good reading to do on the subject of, of how things became illegal, right? There's right. plenty of places you can go. There's a couple of really good blogs. It's um, one of my favorites is Points Blog. Um, Points Blog tells you a lot about, Points is the blog of Alcohol and Drugs History Society. And what that blog will tell you a lot about is the history of banning what the governments call psychoactive chemicals. And it really is a moral position. Um, And it needs to not be a moral position. All of it. Uh, Whether it's nicotine, whether it's um, cannabis, whatever it is, these things need to not be punished. Usage of these things by a lot of people is self-medication in a way that doesn't require them to change their daily life and make their daily life worse. And it's ridiculous that the government expects you to live on what they think is good for you. And yet diabetes, heart disease, uh, obesity, all these rates have skyrocketed from people following the stupid ass food pyramid that they put out in the seventies. 
And those rates aren't going down. No, no, they're not. Well, and on then on the vaping scale, look at uh, the guy who just was acquitted from all charges from shooting his wife because the courts deemed that he was off his nut because he was taking Chantix. Do you know, but, I wish that was the uh, worst. Chant- Clun, yeah. I wish crap. that was the worst Chantix story I can tell you. There was a no, man. And, but, I mean, that's the one that's been out there a lot in the last few days. And it's just like, can I tell you people worse? were enraged and I'm going, why are you enraged? It's, it's FDA approved. Yeah. And I say this with the greatest amount of sarcasm I can possibly say, because if anyone thinks that they're out there for public health, they're off their nut. No, they're, they're out there to serve the interests of the public. Agenda is not in our best interest. No, they're out there to serve the agendas of the public-private partnerships that they've made, also known as a cute little form of fascism. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, to get back to the horrible Viseraline story, there is a man who had undiagnosed mental illness. This was recent, and I, I will dig up the story eventually, and I'll read it, and people can get all pissed off again. Uh, he did some stupid shit while he was taking the Ceraline. Uh, he was taken to jail. The man gouged his own fucking eyes out while he was in jail because of how off his nut the Viseraline made him. And the court ruled that he cannot sue the company that makes the drug because there's, you know, the FDA says it's okay. And that is the yeah. only thing he had in his fucking system. The only thing. Well, I haven't kept up to date on how much they've uh, paid out in undisclosed settlements. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just in well, the I... U- I, I believe in the first three years, it's something ridiculous like yeah. $200 million in out of court mm-hmm. settlements. With, of course, well, non disclosure on, on the oh, settlement. Sure. So I mean, to talk about it. <laughs> also, recently, because I read a lot about nicotine and, and tobacco drugs, I'm just very interested in why the government prohibits people from living as they see fit. Um, so I read a lot of this stuff. There is a woman who wrote into a doctor that she started taking Viseraline and then started just, she she couldn't control her bladder at all. And the doctor that she wrote into the newspaper told her, oh, just keep using it. Um, it's FDA approved. I'm sure that's not a, a side effect. It's probably a problem with you. Yeah. But it's she's not the only one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bed- bedwetting has happened to a lot of people who are taking this, and yet that's okay. Socially, it's okay as long as you don't smoke or do anything that the government doesn't like. But yeah. they also don't like vaping, so go back to smoking. Is that the message I'm supposed to get from this? Go back to hurting well, it, yourself, to take yourself out of the system so we don't have to pay you anything that we don't fucking have in Social Security because we've been robbing it for years. I mean, that's the message I get from all this. The message that they're sending you is it's okay to piss yourself in public and commit suicide on the installment plan because they make money off both. And it's ridiculous. This this sort of shit is ridiculous. And this is why people don't trust drug companies in a big way. And it's why when... I'm sure you remember this very um, 
was it GSK who lobbied the UK government against e-cigarettes really heavily? Oh, Glaxo that, yeah. would definitely have. Yeah. But well, it was I mean, one they, of the they throw big their money companies. All over the place. Yeah. Right, but GSK was the one that got caught. Yeah. Um, you know, and and they're just like so. Well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's... Tamiz and Glaxo are allowed to continue business because they get caught bribing people so often. Uh, yeah. Was I it agree. W? Yeah, I mean, they've been. <laughs> there are so many officials in oh. WHO have been bribed and caught mm -hmm. getting bribed by mm -hmm. GSK, and yet everybody blames GSK. It's like, what are you doing about the people in WHO who took the money? Yeah, yeah that's, that's just like that smacking. Yeah. That's like yelling at your kid for taking cookies out of the cookie jar. Uh, <laughs> well, hello, if the cookie jar's not there for the kid to get to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, all of this goes round and round and round in a circle. So you've got the DuPont family that did major lobbying along with the Hearst family to get cannabis and hemp made illegal in the United States. That's that's just number one. Then you've got all the drug companies lobbying the shit out of all of these governments saying, oh, you've got to make vaping illegal. And, you know, look at what they're doing in the United States. Look what they've done in Australia. You know, it, it, this is ridiculous. And people are awake to the fact that this is happening. People are not stupid. You can't pee on people. For years and years and years and tell them it's raining, eventually they're going to notice that it's yellow when it fucking smells. Sorry. Well, maybe they will and maybe they won't because <laughs> let, let me, t seriously, let me take this to another level. Who in their right mind would call a documentary film a tobacco product? Uh, Facebook? Bingo. And how, how many people work there that should have enough common sense to be able to distinguish between a documentary film and a tobacco product. Oh, come on. Common sense. <laughs> uh, no, see, it... this, and this is the problem. Common sense does not exist anymore. It does it's exist. It's, well, as, it, as, common uh, sense exists, but it's been bought from, out by the yeah. multinational corporations. As a certain vapor from Slovenia used to say on shows, yeah, it's now a superpower. Mm -hmm. uh, Reggie well, the in Slovenia. The, yeah. the corporations pretty much control everything. Yep. You know, we can lobby the government all we like, but it's really them that need to, like, loosen the iron fist. It really is. As long as there's money, it's not going to happen, though. Well, I mean, we're getting to that point where they've printed so much that that might not even be an issue anymore. They want yeah. us all to move to digital currency. And with the crackdowns that they're having in airports and they're having these crackdowns in every country, if you go through customs, that tells you something. There yeah. is a massive demand for cash. Governments are spending way above what they bring in. And what happens if you or I do that? Well, we get to go live in the poorhouse or possibly to jail. Mm -hmm. Or both. Actually, they don't have poor houses anymore, but 
But yeah, if you have the, the ability to the print UK, your own money, in the you don't UK, have to. There is absolutely no connection at all, according to the Conservative government, between <laughs> the rise in homelessness and the use of food banks amongst people. Uh, oh, and yeah. the austerity policies. There's no connection at all between not having money and not having somewhere to live or any food to eat. It's, well, there's no yeah, connection you know, at all, apparently. I, the, the only thing I'm going to say is this. It pisses me off, too, because I come from a military family. I don't have a problem with the military. I support the members that go in there and, and do what they do. I think they believe what they're doing is right. But most of the time when we go to war it's for business interests and yeah. yet if we stopped spending some of that money do you realize what you could do for your countries oh yeah you there's, you there's been that huge debate in the uk recently over the just renewed trident or nuclear yeah deterrent and yeah the the, the amount of money that's going to be spent on that would fund our health service four times over Mm-hmm. No, no, we we have to what? have these nuclear missiles that yeah, I, we, we yeah. have to have because that insane North Korean guy's got them and this will stop him firing his off. Well, what? You, yeah. Look, Basically, yeah, nuclear have... deterrents don't work anymore. You have so, terrorists... And everyone in North Korea is well-fed, we know that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's <laughs> the fact that they keep claiming they need the nuclear weapons to act as a deterrent. But a deterrent only works against some... Uh, an opponent who is logical and not in na- that case. Well, I mean, you know what's fucked up? I was talking about going through the Soros leaks last night. There was, there was a, you know, there was an itinerary report for George Soros and and Kim Jong Un. They were they were going to go a bunch of places, and he was talking about how important it was to go to like solar power. Well, you don't have a fucking choice. Look at your country from a topographical map at night. Yeah. <laughs> like one light bulb on. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the people there are not living the great life. So I don't know what the system is. I, I don't know what system works, but I definitely think less government and less government intrusion into everything is way better for everyone. Oh, did really you see do. the uh, John, North Korea, did you see the thing about the the, the BBC journalist who got kicked out a few weeks ago. What? The, he'd gone over the um, Nobel laureates got invited to North Korea for some reason, I can't remember. But there's a BBC guy who's got history of undercover filming in North Korea, got sent with right. him. And yeah, he kept trying to wander off and film things. <laughs> so yeah, they eventually <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're threatening him to jail him but they kicked him out <laughs> instead. I think it's Panorama. You'll probably be able to find it on YouTube. Okay. It's hilarious. You know they're they're in the little compound that they got put in <laughs> when they arrived, and he's like, "Yeah, well, I couldn't see obvious security, so we just decided to go for a walk." <laughs> and they're just getting to the gate, and the, the cameraman's turned back. The security guy's running after them, trying to stop them leaving. <laughs> like, ah, where are you going? Ah. <laughs> it's it's hilarious. Well, it's not hilarious, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I know. But yeah, the guy's banned from ever going to North Korea ever, ever again, honest. Even though he'd um, done it before, this is not his first offence there. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sure that'll stick. I don't know. Uh, countries that are I, run by crazy people, 
I don't think you have any deterrent for no. that. Go ahead. No, no, exactly. I mean, <laughs> they spent all this money on these these defense projects that basically don't do anything. How many how many nuclear weapons have been used in an act of war in human history? <laughs> Two. <laughs> yeah. Two. How many do they have? Thousands of the damn things. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's really cost effective there. Um, yeah. Well, I don't think so. It's yeah. not. So, actually, you know, we're coming up on like three hours. <laughs> yes. So, um, does anybody have anything else tonight? Nope. No. Hat shopping's think... really difficult. Well, hat really shopping difficult. online is very difficult, I yeah. would imagine. Hat shopping in real life is very difficult. I, you know, I don't use hats so much. I haven't really found one I like. You, well, you, you have no idea of my sorrow when my, my fedora <laughs> was, you know, no way to save it, probably, and had to buy a new one. Well, it's an old it lived... friend. It's, I've had it more than 20 years. Yeah, it's lived a good, long, useful life, and now you've got. No, it's, it's just got, it's got to go. It's got to go to the, the retirement cupboard and just sit in the dark. You have resting. a retirement cupboard? Really? No, but it's a nice I didn't thought, think so. <laughs> uh, you My know, my black cat I... is brown. No, <laughs> but yeah, I got another fedora, so it's okay, and I'll get a get this right. Yeah, China mass production. Uh, it's it's basically a clone fedora. It's been mm. made in China. But the the felt's thicker and stiffer than you'd normally get in a fedora, so yeah, it's a stopgap well, until I find a nice one. Well, and you will. Good fedoras are hard to find. No, it's quite easy in the UK. We still have like eight or nine proper hatters you, making the damn you have, things. Christie's and, and Saxons and all other companies. Right, and and they they make them with the old style felt. Yes. Are there soft, are there hatters? Soft felt, yeah. Right, but I'm saying, are their hat? Do their hatters look unwell? I've no idea. You only you only see them online these days. Well, I'm just saying. I don't think they actually... look like Johnny Depp. If that's what you're asking. No, no, I, I'm not saying that. But you know, people who dealt with arsenic did not look well, and that's actually still used in making. Yeah, I believe they have giant fume cupboards these days. You know. <laughs> oh, All the equipment's that's... basically in climate control these days so yeah good thing no longer is it people just leaning over giant vats of chemicals (laughs) (laughs) yeah this seems good for us really (laughs) ah well at least some progress has been made then although the chinese cheap hat it's probably got a factory with poor crazy people running around because it's china (laughs) bank on that (laughs) yeah well china that's say? another show. Well, it, China is another show, but I, I will say this: um, a communist country—they're all about making that money. Yeah, they're a, they're, they're Isn't a that interesting? capitalist country. Yes. Well, I, it, you know, there's a school of thought that says you can't really have a free society and have a capitalist society. Yeah. And I, and in a way, I really do think that's true. I, I think. To move to a point where you're post-government, you have to move to a point where you're almost post-money. So it, it's the future is going to be really interesting. Getting there is going to suck, but the future is going to be really interesting, and I kind of can't wait to get past the shit point. 
I want to get past the big shit sandwich we're all going to have to take a bite of and get to the future. We just that have I'm to avoid Murlocs and Eloy. Yeah. <laughs> um... And Yellowstone. <laughs> <laughs> and Siberia. Yeah, that too. And Botnets. Um, Muppets and Edward? Okay. Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Good night, you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.